VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Um, so I'd like to hear from you today. Uh, there are so many issues of um, public importance that are hitting the headlines uh, as of the last little while. We can talk about those or we can talk about whatever happens to be on your mind. We won't know about it unless you tell us about it. So give us a call. We often get those kind of calls in the newsroom. Do you know anything about this? No, because you haven't called us yet. So uh, give us a call. Let us know what's happening in your part of the world, by all means. Uh, please do so. A couple of topics right off the top, just to get the old uh, juices flowing. The VOCM question of the day today, do you think government should prioritize the replacement of HMP? Yes or no? Well, years ago, whenever we asked questions about the replacement of HMP, because as you know, this is a conversation that's been had for decades. Brian Medor can attest to this as well. In fact, my Myself and Brian were talking about this the other day, being kind of veterans in the in the system. Um, when I started in this business back in the late 80s, that was uh, one of the topics of uh, discussion at that time, replacement of HMP. That's uh, 30 years ago. So this has been on the go for a very long time. That building is aging. It's got a bunch of add-ons to it, which are also suffering. As we know, the uh, visitation room, which is one of these modular add-ons to the to the facility down there, um, that they discovered black mold in that area, according to NAEP, and uh, now they're doing remediation work. So there's no visitation now at HNP, no face-to-face visitation. They're doing virtual visitation like they did during COVID. But for people who are struggling, for people who are in HNP, and you're not in HNP because you're doing well. You're in HMP because you are struggling in some way, shape, or form, and that you've run, uh, had some kind of a run-in with the criminal justice system. And um, arguably, you need those supports those contacts with your family, with your friends, with the support people who are going to help you get through. You're not put in HMP to get worse. You're put in HMP to remediate and get better. And that facility, according to many, is just not the place in which to do that. So now they have this visitation room that's closed to the public. There's also some staff who work in that particular wing They've been displaced. Black mold found there while they were doing the remediation work. Uh, Nate President Jerry Earl says, uh, not confirmed, but he's hearing that the uh, people who were cleaning that area out removed bags and bags of dead birds. So how bad is the situation there? So with that in mind, we asked the question today, do you think government should prioritize the replacement of HMP, yes or no? 59% of those who responded up to this point say yes, it should be replaced, which is a very different kind of result than ones we've seen in the past. In the past, whenever we've asked about replacement of HMP, people's attitude was often like, ah, if you do the crime, you've got to do the time. The more miserable it is, the better, is some people's attitude. Uh, people are changing their attitudes towards that now. And they're realizing that this is not the way. You, you put people in that kind of facility, you l- bring them out on the streets, how are they going to be any better? 
Anyway, it's one of those questions. What do you think? Is it time to replace HMP? Give us a call. Well, parents in paradise are rallying for a high school in the fast-growing community, and we've been hearing these arguments for quite some time now. Uh, Paradise, one of the fastest-growing communities in all of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, Huge suburban area, as you know, relatively densely populated. Uh, Lots of young families moving in there. And so the argument is it's time that Paradise has its own high school. It finally has an intermediate school. It's got a couple of um, elementary schools. Now's the time for a high school in the area. Um, Right now, the uh, kids in Paradise are um, bussed out to Holy Family and CBS if they're on that end, and the rest of the kids are bussed out to uh, Mount Pearl Senior High. So we asked the English School District what enrollment is at Mount Pearl Senior High. Well, currently, it's 685 students. 495 of those, so the vast majority, are students who are bussed in from Paradise, but... Uh, the English School District tells us that Mount Pearl Senior High has held more than 900 students in the past. Now, whether or not that was, you know, bursting at the seams at that particular time, they didn't in- indicate that. Uh, they uh, reached a peak enrollment of 944 in the 2018-2019 school year, just before uh, COVID struck. The English School District says it typically reviews school systems based on broad geographic location, and they did one in 2018-2019 uh, when uh, Mount Pearl Senior High um, reached its peak enrollment of 944, almost 1,000, and the Holy Spirit of Mount Pearl Senior High School feeder systems, um, it recommended that the opening of an intermediate school in Paradise be uh, done, and that has happened, and that Mount Pearl Senior High move to a 10 to 12 facility. Facility. So uh, it almost sounds like, based on those numbers, that the pursuit of having a school, a high school open in paradise might not be in the offing. It's hard to say. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, I'd like to hear from parents and others on that. By all means, do give us a call. Well, we have people waiting in the lines. Uh, lots more on the go, including this uh, small tent city, which has been set up across from Confederation Building to draw greater attention to the uh, housing crisis that we're seeing here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Government officials uh, shying away from calling it a crisis, but almost everybody else is and uh, if anyone has any thoughts on that they're certainly welcome to give us a call well we're going to start the show this morning with uh the mha for topsail paradise paul din hello paul good morning linda how are you i'm good how are you not bad i, I appreciate the invite today and uh, uh to talk about paradise and i, I listen to you there on your uh, opening comments and uh, look, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the numbers. Uh, I mean, there's always an ebb and flow to to uh, school numbers. But when you look at the long-term trend of numbers, that that's really what you're looking at. And when uh, you know the figures uh, in terms of growth, and and the government have already spoken to it. They've spoken to uh, the increase in in uh, children in in uh, schools now. So that's going to hopefully continue. And in an area such as uh, Paradise and CBS. You know the uh, population is growing, and uh, you know you you can't wait till every school is busting at the seams. And as we know, and you mentioned, I mean, there's been times where where some of these schools have been totally maxed out. So you know the need for for school in paradise is is a definite. There's no doubt about it. And to uh, to make decisions based on on, on a one year uh, ebb and flow uh, makes no sense. But you know since uh, 2014-15. Uh, Paradise High School has always been at the top of the list in terms of capital requests for the uh, English school district. So, 
you know, it's it's to me and to the many uh, parents and families in in the community. They see it on a daily basis. You know, the the need for it and. Uh, when you see the schools outside, you know, CBS and Mount Pearl, and uh, it, it takes away the opportunity for children to participate in a lot of the activities because, you know, the, the opportunities are less. Whereas if there's another high school in the, in the area, then certainly more more can uh, participate in, you know, band and sports and, and arts and, and, and the like. So this is what parents are looking at. Uh, these communities are growing. Um, there was a, a, just a subdivision announced just recently in Paradise for another 111 homes. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it would be foolish to keep continuing to defer a high school in Paradise when, when the trend, the long-term trend is upwards. So what's the enrollment like at uh, the new intermediate school then? Because I, I imagine that that's the one that will determine how many kids are going into high school in the coming years. Well, I mean that school was fabulous. There's, you know, that's that's uh, got uh, quite a number of students in it. It's uh, uh, parents were quite happy when that opened because it kept some of the kids here in the community. Now, granted, it created some issues with with uh, parents who still saw their kids uh, bust out. And there's always the hope for a a school here that could take all all the residents. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but uh, uh, certainly we need some kind of high school here. You just heard of an announcement in Kemount Terrace. Uh, you know, those are more students. Where do they go? They, they potentially could be uh, uh, continue on to, to Mount Pearl. Uh, you know, so it all comes down to the question configuration. But when you look at the numbers, the population and the growth and the demographics, uh, a school, a high school in, in Paradise is much needed. And the parents have been on. I, I got to, you know, I tossed it out to them. I'm, I'm just a figurehead for them speaking for them. Uh, and many of them can certainly speak for themselves and have called in to your shows and, 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 uh, and talk to people on this uh, uh, need. And, you know, they're very uh, motivated, very aware of the need, and uh, very organized. And they're going to continue to do that until uh, a high school is announced for Paradise. And looking at, the bu- you know, this year's budget, they want to see an announcement in this year's budget. They, uh, they will be in the House of Assembly on opening day, uh, and they want to see government act on this. It's... Uh, you know, it's still terrible. I mean, and you mentioned, you know, uh, the numbers for uh, Mount Pearl Senior High, but you still also have uh, uh, the other side of it here, which is uh, uh, Holy Spirit. I mean, they have huge numbers as well, and um, you know, keeping these uh, class sizes to reasonable management, uh, manageable level, is it can only do, it could only be positive for uh, our children and and how they learn and develop and and uh, participate in uh, the many activities that. That they should be able to participate in. So uh, this is not going away. This is going to continue. Uh, this was a need, need back in 2014-15. It continued to be a need, and, and it, will, it will continue on until, until there's an announcement here. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I'll tell you this, Linda. When I, when I moved to Paradise 30-plus years ago, at that time I had hoped my children would go to school through Paradise, but, of course, that never happened. But there's many who have advocated uh, since and will continue to do so. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a shame that in a community with four, uh, you know, K to uh, five schools and with uh, an intermediate school, that there's no high school. It, it makes no sense. 
But does it make it difficult if, let's say, for instance, and, you know, this is just a snapshot in yep. time, but does it make it more difficult if the majority of uh, students at Mount Pearl Senior High, for instance, are from Paradise? And if those uh, students are going to school in Paradise, that that would leave Mount Pearl Senior High, for all intents and purposes, relatively empty? I know I'm simplifying this, but just for <laughs> argument's sake, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, you know, unless unless there's a super school uh, built here in Paradise that takes every Paradise uh, student, uh, you know, I, I don't see that happening. You know, not everyone bust out is going to have an opportunity to go to a high school here, but the uh, hope is that it is. But, I mean, think about it. The, the intermediate school itself uh, is not taking all the uh, K-5 to, K to kids. So so they go somewhere. So it all comes down to, as you mentioned earlier, the geographics of it, the, the uh, catchment areas and what's worked out. But regardless of how you look at that and how, how it comes down, there will be that chunk of students in uh, Paradise that really should be going to school in, in Paradise. And, uh, you know, I cannot say if the full 400 and so students that are currently enrolled in uh, Mount Pearl would, would all end up in Paradise. That's something to be decided down the road. But certainly there needs to be a school in Paradise that at least takes, takes some of the pressure and load off these uh, two adjacent schools. Paul Din, I appreciate your time this morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, happy Thanksgiving to you. And, uh, and uh, I suspect you'll probably get other calls from parents. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a loud and proud uh, voice for School in Paradise, and they're going to continue to do so. I look forward to it. They sent out a release this morning, which our newsroom has. Thanks so much. Perfect. Have a great day. Already. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on uh, what Paul's had to say? By all means, give us a call. We're going to go now to Joan. You're on the air. Hi, Joan. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm so so. Got a bit of a cold, so just bear with me. No trouble. Uh, I live in a small community outside of St. John's. I won't say the name of the supermarket. It's recently been renovated, and boy, are we going to pay for that renovation. Speaking of one item, which is a lo uh, which is an egg sandwich, the loaf of bread costs four sixty nine in this supermarket. A dozen eggs cost five seventy nine. Now the eggs—that's the cheapest eggs that they have. Um, so to make this this egg sandwich, I've I've put down two slices of bread, which would come to forty five cents. Two eggs, which would come to ninety eight cents. Two tablespoons of mayo, which would be about fifty cents, and that's probably a bit over. And the container comes in as a little plastic thin plastic thing, I'd say it might be 25 cents. So that means this egg sandwich costs $2.18. Now, the egg sandwich costs five seventy nine itself. So to make the sandwich, it costs two eighteen. So the profit on this one sandwich is $3.61. So that's a huge markup, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know how these things are um, normally priced because, you know, there's a, a labor cost involved in putting those things together, as you yes. know. Now, um, after I totaled this up, excuse me, after yeah. I totaled it up, I did give the 61 cents to the person that was putting it together for how long that takes to put a sandwich together, which is already ready. So that's, that's a very high markup, 300%. So this is my peeve. Now, I'm a senior citizen. I'm and there's afraid. taxes paid on that, too, by the way. Yeah. Okay, well, deduct that a little bit. I'm, I'm, not good, I'm not a good mathematician. But still, it's an awful markup on an egg sandwich. And that was the cheapest sandwich on the shelf. 
Isn't that something? Yes, and I'm I'm a senior citizen. I don't smoke, I drink, I pay rent. I can't even go out with my girlfriends to have a lunch now anymore. Mm-hmm. None of us can. Yeah. Because we're, we're all seniors that I associate with now. Yeah. It's too expensive to go out and have a lunch. So how do we learn how do we learn again to re-socialize in a different way? Yeah. It's tough. And I know that a lot of uh, seniors in particular uh, go for some of these pre-made things because you're not going to buy, in some cases, you know, a whole turkey or a whole this or a whole that, you know, because it's going to go to waste if it's just yourself or just yourself and another person. That's the truth. I don't know why the government doesn't uh, put somebody in there that will go around and check supermarkets and check the markup they have on everything and, and have something done about it. It's ridiculous, especially this day and age. When I got married first, now I'm probably kind of telling my age, but when I got married, uh, I could go to a supermarket, and I was living in Ontario at the time, and buy $20 for the groceries for the week, and I'd have five or six or seven bags of groceries. Yeah, so lucky now, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's lucky now... If, if I could afford to have one bag, and that's not very much in it. No, that's right. A $20 does not get you very far. You can't leave the house with uh, $20 and get anywhere and do anything. No. Uh, you got to have $100 in your pocket now. And what a dollar used to be one time is $5 now. Or more. Oh, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but the the federal government is trying to address this, and um, uh, the innovation minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, met with uh, grocery store owners, or, or the big five, I think, um, earlier this week and said uh, that uh, some changes are coming, um, including uh, discounts on some food, uh, food items, uh, price freezes, uh, price matching, those kinds of things. Do you think that will help? Well, there's an election coming up, so I'm doubtful. <laughs> That's my opinion, though, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't know where it's all going to end, Joan, honestly. Uh, really no idea. I, I really appreciate your call this morning. We'll see what others have to say on it. Thank you for listening to me. All have right. A good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, and we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. We're going to go now to Dennis O'Keefe. Hello, Dennis. Good morning, Linda. How are you? Good. How are you this morning? I'm very, very good. I'm looking forward to a nice Thanksgiving Day weekend. Apparently uh, the weather family. is going to be in our favor, according to Brian Medor. Do I think the weather is going to be in our favor? No, according it's uh, according to Brian Medor, it's going to be in our favor. It's kind of miserable out there today, but uh, apparently <laughs> yeah. it's going to be quite nice. There's only one way to tell the weather accurately, I think, in Newfoundland, Labrador, and that's to get up in the morning and look out, and it is what it is, and it can change at any time. There you go. <laughs> Simple as that, eh? Yep. Yeah, so hopefully, anyhow, we'll have a nice warm weekend and families can get together and enjoy Thanksgiving. Linda, I wanted to just comment on the Southwest Coast Alliance petition that we've been doing up at the village. And that petition will continue this weekend. So I'm encouraging everybody or anybody and everybody to come to the village and uh, just come to our booth and have a chat if you'd like to have a chat and hopefully sign the petition and and, uh, we'll take it from there. How's it going? Are you getting a good response? Yeah, we are. I must say, last weekend was very good. 
and I, I heard Brenda Kitchen talk to Patty yesterday, and they went over the whole issue of uh, the purpose of this petition, which really is threefold, and and it's quite simple, and it it makes sense. I mean, what what the alliance is saying is that due process should be followed, and that there should be a cumulative impact assessment of wind energy farms. Uh, there needs to be absolutely a decommissioning fund that will be put in place by the developer up front so that the money is there when the time comes for a clean-up. And they want to have some meaningful consultation. The government should sit down. And I know that Minister Davis now can call for a review if he so sees so fit. And uh, maybe that's the road to go, but we certainly need to follow due process. We've gone down this road before with uh, major projects, and our record is not stellar. And we need to make sure that on this one, we get it right. What do you make of, uh, you know, revelations now that uh, World Energy GH2 wants to draw from the grid? Not only does it want to draw from the grid, but the amount of power that it needs to keep these turbines uh, going. Um, I think it's uh, a total of 20% of the output of Muskrat Falls right now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that amazes me. I, I think most people had no idea that this draw was going to be as such as it is and the impact it will have on the grid in particular during the winter seasons. So it's it's another example of thinking this thing through totally before we sign on. And that's the purpose of the petition. And uh, not only, you know, because uh, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, the look and, and the space that will be taken up by these uh, massive yep. turbines, yep. Uh, but now we're learning that there's going to be all this crisscross of uh, power lines throughout the port of port Peninsula region, 165 kilometers of power lines uh, in one case and another 55 kilometers of line uh, to the hydrogen plant. I mean, that's going to be a lot of poles and stuff as well. Well, you know, uh, it just seems like the more we scratch this thing, the more we're finding out. And it's important that we find out everything up front before it goes ahead. And the only way to do that is to have the proper consultation and to have a, a, a cumulative assessment. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, of course, let's not discount the decommissioning fund. At the end of the lifespan, these will have to be decommissioned. They'll have to be taken down, I assume. The metal will have to be done with. Uh, let's hope that it's not simply burying it in the ground. So all of this is going to be very costly. And the developers, Mr. Risley and company, will likely be long gone by that time one way or the other either with the money or without and um, my grandchildren and your grandchildren will be left holding the bag like we've like we've done so many times and we don't want that to happen so put the money up front in an escrow account that is there when the time comes to clean it up uh, Dennis, that's not the only thing you wanted to talk about, I understand. Uh, no, yeah, it's not. You know, the thing that's really got me upset the past few days is this fiasco with Tim Hortons and the fact that they've increased 
their prices here in Newfoundland and Labrador for these hockey cards uh, with or without a, a coffee uh, to make one to make the cost prohibitive when it comes to parents and children and two like so many other things we now have the honour of paying more for these cards our kids are going to pay the kids now I'm not talking about adults adults too but in particular the kids love these cards they love to trade them they love to buy them and of course for the most part the only way to buy them is through the parents so a lot of parents I mean you know the cost this is really a prohibitive cost like for example uh, I know families last year that bought a pack of these cards, a uh, hundred in a in a pack, and then distribute them throughout their family and so on. So last year, that pack of cards, taxes included, would cost mom and dad $230. This year, mom and dad are going to have to ante up $345 for the same cards. And I know from my own grandchildren, my grandsons in particular, and my granddaughter, that they love these cards. And they, they, I mean, it's kind of like uh, when you go to school, you trade the cards with your buddy. It's become a social thing, too, with a lot of young kids. For sure. Not just kids, but adults as well. A lot of adults taking it very seriously. Yeah, no doubt about it. Adults also are involved. And uh, so... For Tim Hortons, it's strange for Tim Hortons to go down this road. I mean, Tim Hortons has done a lot of work with kids and a lot of good work with kids when it comes to hacking and so on. And here is this uh, smack in the head for adults and young people here in the province and in the country for that matter. And I just wonder where the revenue for the, or the profit from these cards, where, where it goes, does it go to Tim Hortons Corporation? Does it go to the hockey players in some way, to the NHL? How is this stuff divided up? Well, it's, it, it's, if it went to charity, it would be a different matter altogether to some degree. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I suppose it's their money. Um, but uh, the, I think what's getting, uh, and we had a few calls on this in the newsroom when we ran the story, uh, yep. people say, you know, don't you have anything better to report on? There's bigger issues than this. But these are the little things that get under people's skin. The fact of the matter is we're being charged more here here in Newfoundland and Labrador than anywhere else in the country. They are using yeah. us as a test market to see if people are willing to pay that amount of money. I'm yeah. guessing not a lot of people are willing to pay that money. Um, I, I'm not buying the cards like I once did, uh, so that, that'll tell you something. Um, you know, I don't know how other people feel about it. Anyway, it, it's, it's fodder for conversation for certain. Yeah, Linda, you're right. You know, it is their money. But, you know, you don't get to put hockey players' faces on cards and distribute all these cards around. I'm sure without paying either the NHL or the Players Association, just, well, look, Tim Hortons, tell us. How do you divide up the money, number one? And parents and young people, number two, you... You hit them in the pocketbook. If you want to change your mind, you hit them in the pocketbook. So people should do what you're doing, uh, Linda. Look, for a while, don't buy the coffee. Don't buy the coffee. Don't buy 
the cards. Boycott. Tim Hortons as much as you can. And I'm sure after a week or so, and their sales decline dramatically, hopefully, we will see some give on this. And it's absolutely ridiculous that we have to pay more for these cards than any other part of Canada. Well, if they're using us as a test market, that'll tell the tale whether or not the uh, the price remains at that uh, um, price level or not. Uh, Dennis, uh, thanks so much for your call this morning. Thank you, Linda. And again, I just uh, uh, ask people, encourage people to come out to the village and sign our petition. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Have a good weekend. All right. You too. You. Bye. Bye. We're going to go now to uh, Connie. Hello, Connie Pike. Good morning, Linda. How's it going? How are you this morning? Good. I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm hoping that people will be as passionate about the subject I'm uh, I'm going to raise this morning as they are about the hockey cards. Um, In any event, it's a serious topic, Linda. I'm calling on behalf of Miles for Smiles. And uh, October is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. So I wanted to uh, just give a quick update to folks and uh, let you know that we have uh, a number of activities on the go this month. Uh, But before I begin, um, I want to talk about the numbers in our courts. And uh, Ms. Moore Davis and I have been doing this now for several months. to highlight the cases that are happening right in our own province. And Connie, before you get into that, we're overdue for a break. I I don't want to rush you along. Do you mind waiting through the the commercial break and we can get into this and talk about it properly? Absolutely, I'll wait. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm going to just uh, put you back on hold and and we'll get back to her right after the break. Uh, This is VOCM Open Line. The number's the call coming up. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And just before the break, we uh, were talking with uh, Connie Pike, I'm sorry, with Miles for Smiles. And October is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. And Connie, we're so sorry to disrupt you in your thought process. Please continue. You were starting to talk about numbers in the courts. No worries, and I appreciate the fact that you're giving me ample time to cover the subject. As mentioned, um, each month now we've been uh, doing a count of the total number of child abuse cases going on in our province. There are 10 provincial courts, and um, generally speaking, each month there's there are cases being heard in each of those courts. So for October month, and I really want to emphasize this because a lot of times people don't think it's a problem that affects them or they're not personally affected by it. So, you know, they kind of let numbers and facts roll off their backs and and just, you know, it's not their issue. But to me and to Miles for Smiles and other people who work frontline, this is everyone's issue. So this particular month, October, we have 301 charges in all 10 of the courtrooms uh, with 58 offenders having committed those breaches or allegedly having committed those breaches. And uh, when you think about 301 cases in our province this month, Um, prevention month Um, what's most disturbing or what should be most disturbing for people is that we know 
uh, only 10% of cases are ever reported. And in addition to that, only a small number of that 10% ever make it to court. So what we're looking at here is like the tip of an iceberg, really. It's just uh, the 301 sounds like a big number, but it's a small number when you think about what is happening in reality. And we've got this added layer, if you will, in recent years of this whole... Uh, predatory online element as well. Absolutely. The numbers online, um, sorry, Linda, uh, the crimes, um, you know, have gone up like exponentially increasing by hundreds of percentages, extortion and luring, things like that. And we, when we look at the types of crimes, <clears throat> In our own courtrooms, uh, we're looking at uh, quite a range, sexual interference, sexual assault, uh, luring children, distribution of child porn, possessing child porn, uh, corrupting a child, uh, supplying cannabis to a minor, uh, forcible confinement, incest, uttering threats, failing to provide the necessities of life. Like there's quite a range of charges happening right in our own communities. And that to me is very, very sad because, as you know, I've uh, been in this area for quite a while, uh, decades in fact, and uh, numbers are not decreasing, Linda. And that's really concerning and worrisome and should be to every parent, every grandparent, every outstanding citizen in our province. And any survivor will tell you that the uh, impacts are, are lifelong, are far-reaching. Well, this is the thing, you know, like we, we look at child abuse as something that happens in and of itself. It's kind of like in a silo. Well, a child is abused and then it's found out maybe, and then we help them get through it and whatever. But we're not looking at the youth, the teenagers in our communities, and the adults who have been subjected to this kind of behavior at a young age, and the dysfunctional upbringings or the dysfunctional relationships that happened wherein abuse was a result. lots of times, uh, usually at the hands of someone that the child knows, by the way, it's uh, stranger assault is very rare. So we're looking at uh, friends, neighbors, um, stepdads, uh, you know, parents, we're looking at a gamut of uh, people that children would know. And again, another concerning fact, because then the access and the secrecy and the guilt, there are so many things that are built into the dynamics of child abuse. And people who are victims of child abuse or any other type of abuse, take that with them. That becomes a part of their reality for the rest of their lives. So, you know, you look at a lot of young people in the community and you're going to see homelessness and uh, addiction issues, mental health issues, all of these things 
didn't happen in isolation. There's a reason that people feel this way and are traumatized for life. It's generally because of what happened during their childhood. So there are many, many repercussions. It's like dipping your finger in a still pond and creating that ripple, and it does not happen by itself. It it just has tentacles and grows as people grow older, and we deal with all of these issues in the aftermath. So I do continually ask people to connect the dots. And the story that I generally go to is, you know, a child on on a spectrum of, say, bullying, when a child is bullied in school. Um, That child then, you know, doesn't do well in school generally. Um, So they get to become teenagers and they're uh, often prone to leaving school, quitting, and then their ability to earn an income and and have a good life becomes compromised. Uh, You know, they generally cope with issues uh, like trauma like this um, through drugs and alcohol, and uh, it leads to a number of other issues, the mental health issues, the trauma, the PTSD, and then they could become homeless because of their lack of ability to earn. And uh, we often see uh, suicide as a result of all of these kinds of um behaviors, and uh, hopelessness. So I just keep asking people to please connect the dots. It's an important issue, and there are many, many ramifications. So if I could just tell you some of the things that we're doing this month. I yes, know. please, uh, because we're up to we're coming up to another break now. But, uh, yeah, yeah, what is uh, Miles for Smiles doing during this uh, National Child Abuse Prevention Month? Well, it used to be April, and uh, nationally it, it's October, so we moved our time frame as well. So the province uh, proclaimed this to be Child Abuse Prevention Month. Uh, we sent 271 emails to all the towns around the province asking them to sign proclamations, and we hope they do in efforts to keep the children in their own individual communities safer. Um, We're hearing back from some of the towns, and we'll post it on our social media. Of course, we depend on social media posts quite a bit. So we would ask people to go to the Miles for Smiles uh, page and check us out. Um, We've had the lights on in Government House. We're blue on the 4th. Blue is our color. Uh, Confederation Building will be lit up on the 12th. Uh, Coast Radio is helping us out with some promotional work. Um, We're going to be on uh, the Signal. With Adam Walsh on CBC on Wednesday, and we look forward to that. We have a Go Blue Day um, on October 27th, whereby we ask everyone um, within our listening audience to uh, wear something blue and then share it with us on the Miles for Smiles site. And, of course, our all-important work, uh, which Bev has been really spearheading uh, since 2018, in fact, um, trying to move the issue of body safety in schools higher up on the agenda. Um, It's been a slow process with the Department of Education. They're implementing it on a trial basis, a pilot basis. 
and um, more more classrooms are privy to it now as of September, and more will be in January. But we'd really like to see this sped up as opposed to full implementation in 2025. Uh, given our numbers, you know, 250 to 300 cases per month, and only 10% and less going to court, as I mentioned, um, we see this as a critical issue and we'd really like to move that along. So we're keeping that lobby up this month as well. Connie Pike, I do appreciate your time. It's a very difficult uh, conversation. It's a very difficult topic, as we all know, but it's a very, very important one. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda, very much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Any thoughts on what she's had to say? By all means, give us a call. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with the mayor of the city of St. John's, Danny Breen. This is VOCM Open Line. Here are the numbers to call. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We are going to go now to the mayor of the city of St. John's, Danny Breen. Hello, Danny. Hey, Linda. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good to hear. So I was talking to Judy Powell with Metrobus the other day, and uh, she confirmed what a lot of us have noticed, you know, just driving around town and looking at the bus stops and that, ridership way up on Metrobus. Yeah, so, you know, typically there will be about three point, a little over 3 million rides uh, per year. Uh, we're expecting in 2023 that's going to get up around 4.5 million. So uh, in the first eight months of 2023, we were, I think, 45% over our 2019 pre-pandemic numbers. So uh, it's, a, it's a significant increase. And, of course, that's presented challenges uh, for, uh, for Metro Bus and the St. John's Transportation Commission. So uh, we're, we're working hard to, uh, to address those. So what kind of things are you looking at? Well, you know, adjusting schedules um, and finding uh, other ways to accommodate uh, riders. Um, so, you know, we've we've launched a pilot project on the on-demand service uh, that allows people to be able to uh, to to use the app to go on and and uh, you know a, a better alternative for them uh, to find the right route and the right method to get to their uh, destination. Um, so that's going on, and there's also uh, eight new hybrid buses that we've uh, that we've sourced, and uh, they'll be joining the fleet next year. So uh, some of some of those will replace aging vehicles, and uh, but also we'll be able to increase uh, increase our capacity through that. So what's a hybrid bus? This one that works on uh, on uh, both uh, both forms of. Um, uh, of, of energy. I, I think it works on a, on a diesel and electric um, combination, uh, much the same as a hybrid car. So that's very cool. Um, uh, is there a greater cost for these types of machines? Well, yeah, there's there's a whole lot of issues around that. So one of the things that we're also doing is uh, we're looking at studying the electrification of the Metrobus fleet. Uh, so that's a process that uh, we're working on now uh, we're going through uh, looking at the various issues around that because you have to consider range and how many buses you'd need uh, maintenance uh, even your physical structures to accommodate uh, those buses which are of uh, a different size uh, certainly more more height on the, on the top of a lot of them so 
that's a that's a comprehensive study that's well underway, and, um, and once that's received by St. John's Transportation Commission, they'll deal with that. And what about the existing infrastructure? Do you need to put in more um, charging terminals, for instance? Well, you know, that's something that uh, that will come out in that report. So all those issues are, are being looked at. That's fascinating. It's uh, nice to see that uh, St. John's taking this obviously very seriously. Well, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, we've made a lot of changes over the years that have been, uh, uh, that are now coming to fruition. We uh, partner with the provincial government on a low-income bus pass, so uh, for their uh, for their clients uh, who, uh, who receive bus passes. Uh, we also um, put in a, a few years ago where children under 12 or 12 and under uh, uh, ride for free. And that's made a big difference, you know, if, uh, if you have a family of, 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 with a couple of kids in the family, having, uh, having them riding for free uh, certainly makes it more economical for them to use public transit. For sure. And uh, I know my little guy was fascinated with the idea of riding on the bus. They love it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that's the whole idea is is to change uh, with the new generation coming up and getting them more used to public transit. And, of course, with the increased immigration that we have, uh, it's an important service uh, for people that are new to our, our province and our city. And people who are coming here from other cities who are used to um, public transit. I know when I came here from Montreal, um, there was a big difference for me um, between what I was used to in Montreal and what I was used to here. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're making investments. We're studying the best ways to, uh, to address it. Uh, but transportation in the city is, uh, is, is, is very important. And the other issue that we're looking at, of course, and continue to look at is ride sharing. Um, and companies like Uber and, and other companies that operate. So we continue to, to look at what changes we need to make to our regulations uh, and our bylaws to do that. And also working with the province uh, on changes that need to be made at the provincial level. And uh, working with the Board of Trade and uh, Hospitality Newfoundland Labrador have been good partners with us on this in, uh, in, in figuring out the best way to go about it. So what are the impediments then to uh, introducing a ride-sharing uh, system here in St. John's? Well, from our perspective, the, the biggest one of the biggest impediments we have is is our uh, our legislation uh, doesn't envision ride sharing. We have a, a very uh, old act, the City of St. John's Act, and ride sharing uh, wasn't a thing certainly when that came around. Uh, so we have a taxi bylaw, and uh, that taxi is defined under the Highway Traffic Act. So. Uh, it's really a legislative problem between ourselves and uh, and the province. We both have uh, adjustments to make, so we've been uh, working through that. So when can we re- realistically expect to see uh, legislative changes to the City of St. John's Act to accommodate for that? I'm not really sure. So what we've done is we've, uh, we, we've gone to uh, different companies. We've looked at different jurisdictions, the changes that they've made. Uh, we've had some good uh, information provided to us by some of the companies that operate uh, in this area. Um, and we've also seen changes in the taxi industry. So you'll see that uh, taxis now, um, you know, four, four of the companies are using uh, an app uh, to, uh, to order taxis and to, uh, to get rides as opposed to just doing it uh, by phone. So uh, that's been uh, that's been very positive as well. So there's, there's a lot of changes happening to the transportation system uh, here in the city. 
And I know uh, uh, we're almost up to news time now, but it, I, I think it needs to be uh, addressed in some way. Um, this whole issue of access to safe, affordable housing. I know the city has quite a few um, uh, properties um, and there had been some changes because, of course, family dynamics and uh, the need has changed over the years. How are how's the city doing with, uh, you know, accommodating some of those demands and those needs? Well, we've uh, we we have 476 uh, units uh, that we uh, that we manage. We have about a five percent vacancy rate uh, right now, so there's a significant demand on that, and we have a, a waiting list, obviously, for uh, to to do those. So we are uh, we're we're working hard when we do have turnover to get the units back. Uh, in uh, operation as as fast as we can. Uh, We also had an announcement last week through the Housing Accelerator Fund uh, with the construction of 35 more units uh, in partnership with Choices for Youth and Stella Circle. But, you know, we continue to work uh, to address the issue, but it is a major, uh, major issue. I don't think you can really explain how significant the housing um, uh, crisis is right now. Um, you know, when you look at the billions of dollars that have been spent, I saw an article yesterday in Financial Post, uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing estimated to deal with the housing affordability is a trillion dollar issue. Uh, so we just got used to be talking about billions. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big, uh, I think that kind of puts it in perspective of the work that's ahead here. Oh, yes, indeed. And um, I know that uh, many of the units that the city um, manages uh, were built in a certain era and and accommodated for certain needs at the time. So with uh, three bedrooms or whatever the case may be, I know the deputy mayor addressed that some years ago, saying that they were looking at modifying some of those properties so that you get more single um, person dwellings, those kinds of things. How you were how you doing with that? Well, you know, we've uh, we've we've gotten to the point where we've made some modifications. We've added some new units in some of the partnerships uh, that we've had, uh, but we did have uh, four bedroom units uh, as well uh, that are not always easy to uh, um, to to utilize. Uh, but uh, we, we're, we're managing it, and uh, we have made some changes, and we've uh, gotten most of our units back uh, on, uh, on, in use again. St. John's Mayor Danny Breen, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Linda. Have a happy Bye. Thanksgiving. Same to you. Already. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on what uh, Mayor Danny Breen has had to say? By all means, give us a call. We're up to news time now. Here are the numbers to call. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Um, uh, just going to mention this. Uh, a listener uh, emailed us, um, and this is something I've noticed myself. Uh, so I'd like to hear from others on this. Uh, this person says that they take the Guzhu Highway every day for work and uh, travel it uh, several times a day. It's uh, a regular occurrence, they say, to see large items in the middle of the Guzhu Highway just under the Briar Avenue overpass and I've noticed this over the last number of days in particular there have been a number of items uh, smashed to bits on the road below that overpass uh, and uh, some of the remains are still there now um, one of them looked like like an old TV like a great big thing and apparently uh, someone uh, narrowly avoided getting killed the other day when a, a microwave oven was thrown from it I don't know if it hit the car if the car hit the mu- 
uh, microwave oven on the road, but you can see the skid marks going off into the road. We had uh, uh, off into the ditch. We um, had a, a news story about it earlier in the week. Very alarming. Um, anyway, if anybody has anything to say on that, by all means, do give us a call. We're going to go now to um, Sean. You're on the air. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great to hear your voice again. I'm good, thanks. Great to hear. Uh, I've been listening to uh, to uh, the issues of moose accidents again. You know, and a lot of people are going to yawn at this, but you know, it's so serious. We've got a 54-year-old just died a couple of days ago, five kilometers east of uh, Birchie Narrows. I mean, you know, I'm, the, I'm probably on his way to work. Who knows? At that hour, three o'clock in the morning, uh, we've got to use our highways and. Um, and these uh, these terrible accidents occur. Uh, I'm uh, I'm looking at the New Brunswick website, and I've mentioned this before in uh, my phone calls to your open line program, uh, talking about you know this is this is not us until it's us, you know. Uh, and when it happens to a friend or to a family member, uh, you know, really come you know really drives home that that this, that we have a very very uh, serious issue going on on our highways. Uh, a lot of hot spots around, and and the place that we don't see the accidents are in that area where we have the uh, uh, the fencing between George's Lake, in my my childhood hometown near Cornerbrook, and out to uh, White's Road heading into Stephenville. And uh, and so that proves to me that the that the fencing works. Uh, believe it or not, it's only about $70,000 a kilometer. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, to put the fencing in, it's a nice summertime job for for, for students or whoever with a supervisor look, um, just making sure it's done right. And the other thing we need to be doing more of is the brush cutting. Now, the issue with brush cutting, of course, once you, br- once you cut it, it comes back probably three times as high a year or two later because it's like it has never been cut before. And when you cut the brush, uh, it's great for that season, but then it's back the next summer, and then the second summer, it's you know, it's so high that the moose and you, know, you just don't see them when they're when uh, when they're feeding down in the down along the ditches, and they do like they're like I followed a tractor trailer a couple of weeks ago out Trans Canada Highway, uh, out around Bellevue here, and he had his side lights on, and and there are moose uh, on on both sides, and he's got them shining in the ditches. And as soon as you'd see one, he'd lean on his horn. Of course, he'd, he'd, he'd dart back into the woods. But I don't have that. Most people on the highway going out this weekend for the first time probably for a while to their family homes or people coming into the major centers to visit families for their Thanksgiving Day, uh, day and spend with family, they don't have the benefit of that. And so they've got to be scanning, uh, you know, being very, very careful aware that you know, it's just not a nice, nice, easy drive anymore. It, no, it's not. You've got to be really aware. These moose will come out any time of the day or night, and and all of a sudden they're in the middle of the road before you know it. And, and, and they really them. do appear from nowhere. Anybody who's encountered this kind of a of, of an experience can tell you. It, they literally, I mean, they're like racehorses. And well, uh, their um, a, uh, evolution is that they blend in. And then all of a sudden, they're bang, they're in front of you. It's one thing in the middle of the day. It's a whole other thing in the middle of the night. Well, let, let me say this to you. Uh, I, a few years ago, I was out in Cornerbrook, and I was heading back out to Pasadena, to stay with a buddy of mine, and um, it was only about seven o'clock on 
September evening, beautiful evening, sunshine, gorgeous evening. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, near Pasadena, these, this moose actually leapt over the, uh, the guardrail, coming from the lower part down where Deer Lake is. And you understand it's about a 300 to 400 foot uh, rise from the lower part, the lower road heading into Corner Brook, and where I was heading out. And that moose was in full gallop. And uh, we managed to, uh, to swerve to avoid him. Before he knew it, a second one came up over the same guardrail, and we had to swerve to avoid him, and we lost the uh, front quarter panel of the vehicle, my buddy's vehicle, and also the mirror. And it was just pure luck that my friend was very quick you know, to, uh, to maneuver between the two moose. Had we hit either one of them, they would have been in our lap, and I wouldn't be talking to you today. Um, uh, the cost to fix that was extensive, but my neck had been sore for about a week from whiplash because I wasn't the one driving to know exactly that exact second that my buddy was going to do the maneuver to avoid them. And we've had so many people end up in hospitals. We've had family members and you know, in traction or paralyzed from the waist down or neck down all their lives. People have lost their, their fathers, their sons, their daughters, grandparents, you know. I mean, like, we're having a lot of accidents that aren't even reported because people are swerving, probably going down in the ditches, but you never you never hear that it was a moose that caused it. And not long ago, we had a guy avoid a moose, swerved into oncoming traffic, and you had a multiple car pileup, people badly injured. I don't know if anyone was killed. I mean, these things happen, and they happen because they can get onto the road. So there's a couple of things that New Brunswick has done. They have reduced their their moose accidents by 90% from 10 years ago. They did that by putting in the fencing, cutting the brush, and then they reseed the brush. Oh, sorry, they seed where they cut the brush so that the seeding is done, and that kind of kills the, the, that, 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 uh, those, uh, those small trees and all that from growing back up. We need to reseed it, you know, with, within the next year after cutting the brush, and, and that way we avoid it. Uh, you know, uh, so, the, so the moose at least aren't aren't on, practically on the road. Uh, you know, like if we can do that by by 80, 100 feet off the uh, off the main road, then we could probably save a life or two. And isn't a life or two, or someone's life being being disrupted by serious medical issues, uh, not able to play with their children anymore, or or their grandchildren, or whatever, all because of a moose? Like it's worth it. And, and for $75,000 a kilometer, which is what it costs New Brunswick to do it, I think it's well worth it, you know, to save our population, to make us more relaxed in our highways. And, and you know, we have, this, we have a huge tourism population that show up on this, like in this province uh, at least eight months of the year when the weather uh, gets good in May and then right out into the shoulder season of October, November, and, and, and even during the rest of the year. We have a huge population of people that come here travel here and and you know they're like they're at risk as well and we don't want that going back to people in other parts of the world but it's not safe to drive in newfoundland uh, so these are things that come to my mind and i think it's time that we took it really seriously by by like like, like i say just just follow what new brunswick has done it's worked for them 
uh, it'll work for us. Hopefully for sure. Will. And uh, I know Sweden has put in measures as well because they have a serious problem there. I don't know what they do in Alaska, for instance, either, where uh, yeah. moose are, uh, you know, a, a risk. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a conversation we haven't. It seems as though it's a conversation that we haven't really had in the last number of years with so many other issues on the go. But I'm glad you raised it this morning. Thank you so much. And one last thought for all the drivers, you know, scan, try not to be in distracted driving. There was a lady ahead of me yesterday putting her blush on while she was driving and all that kind of stuff and, you know, in, in, in heavy, heavy traffic. So I just say it, uh, you know, just be careful. It's, you know, like your car is a great thing to have to travel around in, but when you connect up with a moose or, or, uh, or, or you're distracted driving and you hit someone else, your whole life will change forever. Absolutely. Yours and your, your families. Thank you, Sean. Exactly. Thank you. Take All right. care have, have a great Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Same to you. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to the caller on line three. Hello. Hello, Linda. Yes. Yeah, Linda, it's, it's finally happened uh, from the time the Bureau Peninsula here, from Gooby's Junction to to Relabra. Uh, the, the highway is finally named after Don Jameson. God love him. It finally happened, and it should be re- it should be renamed it should be named from Cubic Junction to at least to Marystown. And if there's any other highway down there on the Bureau Peninsula, named it after them too. <clears throat> because so, I was I was talking to Dwight Ball one day in Marystown, and I spoke to Dwight Ball. I said, Dwight, I said, why don't we? Why don't you get together and get someone to call it Beautiful Into Highway after Don Jameson, one of the best politicians ever ever born? And he said, yes, he said, it's a good idea, a good point. I said, well, remember that. He said, I will. Now, whoever got involved since then, I don't know. But they finally got it done. I know that his grandson, uh, um, Joshua, uh, was yeah. a big uh, uh, advocate for that and had been lobbying for that for some time to yes, have his no, grandfather no, recognized. Mr. James and myself about it. Very good. So you agree with it? Indeed, I do, 110%. All right. Well, and, more, and more they are going to be named after him, from, at least from Goobies to Marystown, anyhow. All right. Well, caller, I really appreciate your call this morning on that. Thank you. I hope, I hope some, there's more people calls in about it because uh, there's people around uh, the Randy Allen has changed call after them, and you never did, and they're not really involved in it. But then again, there's renamed, right? It's named after them. And then there's something else about this brush cutting. This gentleman was just down with cutting brush from the highway. Yeah. More especially. From the Trans Canada out to uh, out to Gambone, then place down around that peninsula, it won't be cut there. And every other road and byway and all the way in between. Yeah, I noticed. Uh, I noticed the Gander Bay Road was quite bad this uh, this you, summer, you right up right to the, the road. It was bad. It was right in almost in the road. All right, caller, anyway, I appreciate anyway, that. Anyway, anyway the. It finally happened, Linda, and I'm so proud of it. All right, glad to hear your... when I hear it. Glad to hear your thoughts on that this morning. Yes, my darling, indeed, and you're doing a good job. Thank you very and much. Patty Daly, I thought Patty was going behind, but he wouldn't. But anyway, the, the, the thing is done, so that's a good thing. All right, thank you very much. And, and congratulate the people that have done it. All right. Have a okay. great day. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, your thoughts, uh, give us a call. When we come back, we're going to hear from Greg. You're on. You're listening to <laughs> VOCM Open Line, the numbers to call following this. And we're back. We're going to go now to Greg Sheaves. You're on the air. Hi, Greg. Good morning, Linda. It's Greg Sheaves out in Port of Basque. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. And yourself? Good. What's on your mind? I think it's the first time speaking to you <laughs> over the years anyway. I- I'm calling because I'm on the group, uh, that Protect Newfoundland group and the Southwest Coast petition and stuff regarding those wind turbines and stuff to produce the hydrogen and ammonia production and stuff in Stephenville. But, uh, you know, really, like, there's no electricity being generated here for the residents of Newfoundland. It's just for that business alone. And the, the funny thing that I, I can't get my head around is when you've got government and educated officials and environmental people and stuff to go along with these things, and they're doing it to save the environment eventually, but they're destroying our environment doing these projects. And you take, for example, on Cape Anguilla Mountain, they're looking at probably 160 turbines alone just for that mountain. And I think it's supposed to take in, according to what I heard on the radio the other day from one of the power people, is it takes in roughly 160 hectares of land to do these 160 turbines. But now in the meantime, our provincial government is going to give away around 11 or 1,200 hectares, which is 3,000 acres of land just for that one project. Like, why do they need all that land? Now, in the meantime, you got outfitters up there that have hunting camps. You have your local moose hunters, like in Area 9 and 10. Uh, you got people that go up there, like hunting partridge and grouse. You've got berry pickers. You've got trout fishing people and stuff like that. Now, they're going to go up, give away that crown land, and then eventually up goes the signs, private property, do not enter. You know, and... And in order to save the environment, they're going to go up there and, you know, tear the top off of those mountains and, you know, putting in kilometers of roads and putting in laydown sites and the sites for the towers and destroying the trees and plant life. You know, this is where our environment lives, like your coyotes, your foxes, your moose, your squirrels, birds, frogs, land toads. You know, you've got mink, you've got trout, you've got salmon. That is our environment. But they're destroying all of that to put up these big wind turbines that's going to be an environmental disaster even to do and to dispose of. You know... uh, I, I just can't figure them out. And it's, then what, there's a huge number of questions uh, that people are asking, and rightfully so. Do you think you're getting the answers that you that you that you need? No, but when Mr. Parsons comes out on, on on the radio and bluntly makes a statement, well, this is going to be done without any interruption, regardless. That's very blatant. When you only have forty politicians controlling five hundred thousand Newfoundlanders. Like, no, don't allow them. And, you know, for a scientific fact, once you get up there and tear the tops off those mountains for those lay-down areas of roads and you get a large torrential rain, all of that silt and dirt and contaminants are coming down the mountain. I never saw water go up the mountain yet. 
And, you know, in, in the Codroy River area, you've got all those brooks and streams and everything, you know, flows back down into the Grand Codroy River, which is probably one of the largest bird sanctuaries in Newfoundland. And, you know, where all the Canadian geese nest and all the ducks and stuff is just totally covered with birds. And, you know, now you're going to end up probably with big contaminated areas all to save the environment. Come on. You know, it it don't make one bit of sense. And we saw the destruction from Muskrat Falls. And like I told Andrew Parsons back then, I said, you did it to save the environment. Now, in the meantime, they flooded thousands of hectares of land where, you know, all kinds of foxes and wolves and coyotes lived. That is the environment. They tore up thousands of hectares of land coming down through Labrador, all down through the Northern Peninsula, all across Newfoundland in two directions. They came out towards Port of Bass and poured aside right off, off one of our most scenic twin mountains when there was no need of. But still, for all, if someone's got to go get a permit to put a little bridge across a brook, you got to get a letter from God. You know, but they go and destroy and destroy where birds nest and robins and woodpeckers. That is our environment. So don't tell me that you're going to put up windmills to save the environment when you're destroying it. You know, so that's the kind of stuff that's always going on. Like, uh, and, and we always end up holding the bag at the tail end. And what are you going to do with all these big fiberglass structures? And, and, and again, you know, when people figure, well, there's not much you can do, but that's one thing that drives me nuts is when you make comments and Newfoundlanders shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, not much we can do about it. Yes, you can do something about it. Get out and sign these petitions. If these politicians don't listen to us now, vote them out. Get rid of them. You'll show them who's got the power, you know. So it, it just bores me to listen to some of these comments sometimes and, and these big companies coming in from, you know, Germany or whatever and taking over our crown land. Like, what are we doing? Selling our province to other countries and then they own it? Like, come on. Like, it's it's Newfoundland and it's a very scenic province and it's why tourists come here because it's so natural and pristine and the beautiful mountains. And now you're going to litter them with, like, 500-foot windmills? No, it's, it's just not right. Like, the people's got to sign the petitions and, and hopefully get this stopped because I, I, I definitely don't agree with it, and, and I gave you all the examples as to why. Greg, so, I appreciate your call this morning. We'll see what others have to say about it. Thank you so much. Okay, and I was listening to Dennis there, too, talking about uh, the Tim Hortons hockey cards and stuff, and there's all kinds of schemes and scams, and you look at all that stuff, too, because even when Tim sells a Smiley cookie to donate funds to hospitals and stuff, and when you go to give that dollar for the Smiley cookie, the government still wants 15 cents taxes on that cookie for the donation that you're giving to buy equipment to put in their building. You know, which is ridiculous, and even, even like when you look at the the Charles L. Grohl Center when they had the fundraiser, and you know, people already pay taxes on money that they're going to donate, and we pay some of the highest taxes on alcohol, tobacco, gas, to cover our health care, to provide the equipment we need, and then, like in our area, like uh, Minister Parsons comes in and says, "Oh, we're going to donate fifty thousand dollars towards that." They're only giving us back our own money to buy equipment 
that's eventually turned over, which is their assets, into their building. They should provide any equipment that's required for these buildings anyway. Just my opinion. All right, Greg, thank you. <laughs> okay, Linda, You got it all off your, your chest now. You can have a good uh, Thanksgiving. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. Okay, thanks for your time. All righty. And uh, you want me to put him on hold? Okay, yeah. Uh, we're going to go now to um, uh, Thomas. You're on the air. Hello, Thomas. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, hanging in the girl, trying to struggle through it all. Right on. Girl, what I'm calling for today, girl, is uh, what's happening here in our problems with slum landlords and how our government and the landlord tenant act is actually helping them to get these things done. I go back to the story that I talked with Patty Daly there almost two years ago now, for sure, about me being forced out of my house from a slum landlord. That house now has been done up and been rented out to refugees and Ukrainians. Here I am again now in another slum landlord's property. We were left here with no toilets, told to use uh, paper bags to use our bathroom, and put it in the garbage bag and bring it to the garbage. What? There's, yes, my love. And there's actually places here that I uh, was told there's a man here in a wheelchair. He was promised that he was going to have a ramp put in. And I went down and took pictures of that man's house, apartment, that's the same apartment that I'm in, complex, I should say, 50-plus complex. And uh, the man, there was wires hanging down the wall, hanging out the ceiling, no fire detectors put up, no rain should over the stove. There's people here with wind blowing through the doors, through the windows, but the aren't these aren't actually, these places inspected? Who's responsible for that? Well, that's what I'm trying to understand. Uh, this is the point I'm trying to get across through. That I mean, it's unbelievable that these these things are happening. And what happened a couple of days ago really shocked me. The p- property behind me got sold also by another landlord. Uh, there was a woman got thrown out of her house there a couple of days ago. She's probably in her late 50s, early 60s. Uh, the RCMP were there. They didn't take her. But when the RCMP left, the landlord and a couple of the workers coasted a woman out of her house saying that she did have a place to live and got her in the car. And when they got her in the car, they went in, threw the two cats out, locked the door, and went down. Now, this can be proven and it will be proven right place in the proper time. These things that are going on in our province is caused because of the way our government is running our provinces and letting these things happen. Now, this landlord behind me, uh, with the, is, uh, three apartments there, there's the duplexes, and there's two apartments in each duplex, and there's three, three duplexes there. Now, with saying that, watching this happen with my own eyes, with other witnesses here, watching this happening, my heart went out even when I see the two cats being thrown out, and they're out there walking around the parking lot here now looking for comfort and food, I guess. And then for this to be happening... And now I know for a fact it happened to me being thrown out of my house by the power of the Landlord Tenant Act and the landlords, slum landlords, and our government backing them up. Making these things happen to us, it got to stop. And the only way for it to stop is every Newfoundlander drawing our hands together from one end of the all into the other and push this government out once and for all. And that's the only way our problem is going to get our riches that have been taken wrongly from us for too, too, too many years, Linda. And have you uh, brought these issues to your MHA, for instance? I just will stick my finger, you know where, because I'm calling the Liberal government now over two years with help in my illnesses and things not going on. Patty Daly knows some of it. 
And the FAC team, there's four, three members of the FAC team went through all of this with me. They see and heard everything that's going on, all the laws that's going on between the government and the people that's living here in Newfoundland. And my strong case is I'm going with my case and I'm making sure that every Newfoundland and Labradorian knows the truth about what the Liberals are doing to our province. And I will be sitting up. Uh, sorry, Lynn, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you go right ahead. I'm sitting up. I actually got it started now. I'm setting up a Facebook account. Uh, I'm just waiting for the technicians to come and hook that up for me. And I will be setting up an account for people with the same problems and the same views of what's really going on here in our province so I can, can get this thing straightened up. Because it's not fair for us hard-working Newfoundlanders that worked all our lives and what people got to remember this island would not be here only for the fishermen, hard-working fishermen and hard-working people of Newfoundland and Labrador to have it all taken away by greedy merchants and greedy liberal leaders. It's got to stop them, and, we're, and I'm going to be doing everything I can to make this happen. And my name is Thomas Royal, R-Y-A-L-L, this guy, the last spelling. And then it's not fair for senior citizens to be going through this. All right, Thomas, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lena, for listening. All righty. Bye-bye. Your thoughts on that, by all means, do give us a call. When we come back, we're going to talk to uh, Earl, who's in the queue, and the president of the NLTA, Trent Langdon, right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. Uh, we've had a rollicking first hour and a half of the show, uh, but the lines have loosened up a little bit now. So now is your opportunity to give us a call. We're going to go now to the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, Trent Langdon. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How you been? Great. I hope you had a good International Teachers Day. <laughs> Is he that did. it? <laughs> yeah, World Teachers Day. It was yesterday. Um, I was on the road and, and, and flying and so on and traveling, so I, I couldn't make the call. But I figured I'd make a call this morning uh, regarding this and a few others. Uh, yesterday's theme was making sense of our world, and we certainly uh, all need assistance, I think, right now in doing so. So, uh, yeah, so happy World Teachers Day. Uh, uh, belated, I guess, to all the teachers in the province. Well, that's a heavy mandate, making sense of our world, because uh, I don't know about you, but this world is making less and less sense all the time. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, just just to build on uh, the theme is uh, is making sense of our world. And uh, ultimately, uh, the focus of teachers is and I'll read specifically from the uh, the press release from uh, from the Canadian Teachers Federation is to equip successive generations to think for themselves, to understand the value of collaboration and to broaden their understanding of society. We, we know full well that society is extremely diverse um, and that uh, until we take the opportunity to truly understand uh, that, that diversity uh, within our society, which won't change overnight and which, which will never change, um, in spite of what happens, uh, you know, we're going to continue to have battles and struggle. Uh, for sure. So, uh, I mean, what what's going on now with uh, teachers in Newfoundland and Labrador? We've had a myriad yeah, of issues yeah. that have faced the teaching profession over the years. Yeah. Uh, how are things? What's the report card, so to speak? Right. Yeah. Well, we're about a month in now, and as we as we keep moving through, we, you know, we're we're glad to see schools are open. Number one, uh, but the recruitment and retention issues remain. Um, there has been some successes in filling some hard to fill positions in the remote and rural, uh, but um, the, the pressures are still there. Uh, 
uh, we, we have recently started uh, uh, another campaign, or I guess we've uh, um, restarted a campaign that we had last last year around recruitment and retention. And I'll uh, I'll just focus specifically on one uh, particular quote that uh, we're providing to the public from a, from the administrator saying, uh, every morning is a problem-solving exercise, figuring out who can be reassigned, what services we will have to cancel for the day, and which student supports will not be available. The impact on on students is heartbreaking, and as an administrator, I see that the increased workload and demands on my staff are not sustainable. And that that's the daily feel of, of administrators, <clears throat> excuse me, in our province right now. Uh, school doors are open, but it is not business as usual. So still uh, facing a lot of those problems, and I know recruitment and retention has been a real issue in places right. like Labrador, some rural communities. Um, a- any improvements there? Well, uh, ironically, you bring that up. I, I had the distinct, uh, I say opportunity, but distinct privilege to visit Nain. Uh, that's why I couldn't call in yesterday. I was in Nain and uh, uh, Northwest River, as well as Goose Bay, visiting the schools there. And I got to say, for those who have never had the opportunity to visit Nain, it is is like no other visit that you will get an opportunity. It was a real pleasure to be there. Uh, I've spoken to many teachers from Nain in the past through Zoom calls and so on, but I tell you, you really can't get a feel for what's truly going on there until you actually take the time to to get there. Travel is not easy to get there, but once you get there, uh, you, you see truly what's happening. And uh, um, uh, to my knowledge up there, they're short one teacher right now versus uh, uh, five or six that they had. Uh, they were short last year. Uh, so things have improved in that regard. But the problem is retention, ultimately, uh, Linda. Um, we have uh, individual young teachers who are willing to go in there, uh, but turnover is often common uh, because people either, uh, when they go in there, they say, well, this is not for me, or they have other plans, they want to move back to more of an urban area. So, you know, the only answer to this is we have some very strong teachers up there that are from that area, and they've invested and they've stayed, and they want to be in Maine. They want to be on the coast of Labrador, and that's where this province has to go right now. You have to invest in the young people in these communities to say, look, we got a crackerjack of a grade 12, say, in Maine. You want to be a teacher, we will support you, and uh, we want you to stay in Nain. And who better to teach the students in Nain than someone from Nain or from Makovic or from Hopedale? So that's where this province has to lead. Recruitment and retention is an issue right across the province, but Labrador is very unique. Labrador West brings its own issues. The south coast of Labrador brings its own issues. I haven't even gotten into the island yet, and uh, just it's more of a uh, rural-urban issue in on the island piece, but the, the, the remote piece needs attention, uh, and I can't say it enough that uh, until investment is made in that regard to help those individual communities, it's going to be forever a retention issue. Well, indeed, and, and especially in more isolated or rural areas, uh, you want to have those uh, family supports. You want to have those roots. You want to have that sense of belonging. And uh, for people yep. who come into some of those areas, some people have no issues whatsoever. They put down their own roots. They cling they their do. own space, absolutely. and they, they absolutely love it. But for a lot of other people, it can be very isolating. So why not focus on the people who are in the community, who want to stay, and are looking to make a mark? It's community development, right? And so if uh, uh, if you invest properly, and I don't think it would be a huge financial investment. It's a, it's a human investment, ultimately, to give the people what they need in the moment. Uh, and again, to those teachers who have, have uh, taken the opportunity to look at this as an adventure, to go there and to spend some time. spoke with a teacher just uh, two days ago who uh, had moved there many years ago uh, with the intent of staying a year and has remained. Uh, so uh, you're right. Some people may choose to do so. But I think more often than not, people look at it as a one or two 
two-year placement. Um, we need long-term people to stay in the in these spaces. Um, to fall into a, a, a pit like last year where we had five, six teachers, which led to a parent protest, which led to um, classes being limited and, and students forced online for learning, that can't happen again. The answer is there, as far as I'm concerned. You train people, they will go there or they will stay there. And uh, But again, the recruitment and retention issue around the province, as uh, we've been more successful, when I say we, I mean the system, the school board and government has been more successful in filling certain positions. But my fear is that there are one-offs and that next year we'll be in the same boat. Trent Langdon, I do appreciate your time. Hope you enjoyed your uh, trip to Nain and uh, World um, Teacher Day. <laughs> um, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lena. I hope to call in again soon on a bunch of other issues. But uh, a quick, uh, once again, uh, thanks to all the teachers and the work you're doing. And um, we're certainly behind you. Thanks very much. Absolutely. And we'll chat okay. again soon. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Earl. You're on the air. Hi, Earl. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. First, uh, I want to say happy Thanksgiving weekend to all the people out there and very safe travels to anyone who's on our highways and byways just uh, holiday weekend because of the tragedies that continue to take place, Linda, with the Moose Regal accidents. They're just not going away. We've lost three people, I believe it is, in the last month, month and a half again, and a few more just racked up. God only knows what their injuries are because there's no updates on how they're doing or anything. I listened to that gentleman there, Calden, with the, you know, he said so many things that are true. Uh, just a few days ago, marked the seventh anniversary of the loss of my good friend, lifelong friend, Ben Bellows, uh -huh. who passed away from his Moose Eagle accident in 2003. He, he had 14 years of the sheer torture. I, I, I spent a lot of days with him and seen what he went through. And, you know, there's so many more people that we don't even know, Lynn, that are going through the same things. And, you know, what he was saying with the brush is, is so absolute, 100% true, Linda. There's nothing in the last number of years since this government that we got in the House now took place has done to curb anything that's going to make it safer for highway travel. Here where I live, about 40 miles, 40 miles due to the beautiful community of Cox's Cove here on the North Shore and all the way along Linda every now and then there's signs warning about moose on the highways and the brush you can reach through the window and touch the alders as you're driving along the road now I don't know how many people know that out there but a full-grown moose can move 47 feet in one second oh yeah they can move our our, our two-lane highways Linda are 22 feet wide from the edge of the pavement to edge of the pavement so that's twice that length and plus in one leap. There's, you can't protect yourself against. Listen, if you're driving anywhere from 40 to 90, it's, it's a danger. Now, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're rabbits on stilts, um, big rabbits on stilts because of those long legs they got for the terrain that they travel through. And we're constantly building roads and cutting wood through their habitats. And, and, you know, we bought them here for, as a food source in 1904 and, and didn't think of, of, of what, the, what it would be in, in the years to come, no foresight. But, you know, I came down to New Brunswick there a few years back uh, when I was working in Ontario the last couple of times, eight, nine years ago. I came down to run the Greyhound to have a look around. And uh, in New Brunswick, Linda, just with everything that can be fenced is fenced. 
what the, that gentleman was saying, Jerry, uh, Jerry, before me a few callers ago. Why can't we not put money into fencing and, and, and save people's lives? You know, the medical costs far outweigh the cost of having a person laid up in intensive care or the Miller Center for rehabilitation for a year or so. I ta- you know, I, I talked to a lady at Wildlife up in Wheeler's Road, Cornbrook, yesterday, and she took she said, there's been five moose on our parking lot here so far today. Five. And, and, and just, uh, you know, it's not in the middle. It's it's, it's, out, it's out on the outside, sort of the urban area. But still, there's a lot of a lot of people live around there. And, and the main, main drag that goes through there to get to the hospital, to get to the seniors' complexes, the small seniors' homes that are there, and the people that are traveling around. You know, I mean, five moose. That, that's a lot of moose to see in one area in one day. It is, yeah. I know hunters don't see that many in one day, but uh, you know the, the, you know where is it going to stop, Linda? You know, one life is one life too many. You know, uh, the you you got to understand when that person, like that gentleman, lost his life yesterday there in in in, uh, in the Virgin Arrows. The, the ripple effect that goes out from that death. I mean, I know when I lost my friend Ben Ben Bellows. That is, he had a he had a big family and a lot of relatives and a lot of friends, children, grandchildren, you know, nieces, nephews. I mean, it, it affected upwards of a thousand people directly linked to the, the Benny. And it affects all and, of us. It affects every last one of us because every last one of us at some point is going to be on that highway. I mean, the right across Newfoundland uh, and to a certain extent Labrador. Um, what's the last thing anybody says to anybody hitting the road is watch out for moose. I, I tell them, keep your eyes open for the swamp donkeys. Uh, the, the, the people use those moose whistles. They seem to work. Some people swear by them. Some people say they're no good. You know what I mean? But, you know, what What other choice do you have? I mean, especially if you got to travel, I mean, dusk and dawn is the two worst times for them because that's when they're traveling. Through through the day, up until about 2 or 3 in the evening, they're bedded down from early morning up until that time of the evening. They're bedding down, and then they start to get up and start roaming, come down towards evening time. And we got a lot of calves that are yearlings that when the when the, 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 the cow moose has a new calf, she banishes them. She could have a twin with her that she's banished. And there's a, Shane Mahoney told me years back when Benny had his accident that it was an estimated 40,000 new, newborns every year. Now, I don't know if that number is up or down or steady, but that's a lot of moose to contend with. That's a lot. Uh, you know, if, if there's 40,000 new uh, yearlings that have been declared their mom for the first time that are out roaming around, don't know where they're going, just looking for new territory for themselves. And they so often cross our roads, Linda. They, yeah. You know, every time I come up to the ponds where I go fishing, you know, I usually usually come home in dark, but I I tell you, I got my uh, my uh, boik in in sea for crawl gear coming to the tr- and, and track the nighttime, and my spider senses are on high alert. Believe me, because I mean, the last thing I want to do is, is to end up in the in the broadside of a moose coming out there. No, indeed. You know, at, at Earl, speed is even dangerous. So, Earl, I'm overdue you know. for a break, but I, I really appreciate your call. We'll see what others have to say. Please. All Please, right. I hope the government is listening, Linda. They've got to stop this carnage okay. on our highways. Thank you, Earl. Thanks for taking my call. Have a great weekend. You Peace. too. All right. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Minister Pam Parsons. Hello. 
Good morning, Linda. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to touch base on some district things that are happening in the district that I represent, uh, the district of Harbor Grace, Port Grave, of course, as you know. And I'm happy to say that we have some significant road work that's near completion here in our district. Um, the busy business district, actually, in, in Bay Roberts on Route 70 from LT Stick Drive, um, all through the town there, up, at, up to the area of Jungle Gyms. I'm happy to say we've got some you know, new infrastructure, underground infrastructure, water waste water, as well as some new pavement. Also, the Port of Grave Peninsula has been completed, and I just want to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to help make this happen. It's certainly been a significant priority that I hear in my communities when I'm talking with my constituents. And I just want to thank, you know, the, you know, the men and women who were, who, 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 of course, you know, were on the road doing this construction. I know it's a, it's a short-term pain for a long-term gain, but um, I'm happy to say that this work has been complete. Also, want to let my constituents know that, be assured, I'm certainly advocating for the areas all throughout our district. Uh, Brian's Cove Road is another area, of course, that I'm hoping to squeeze in to have done. I'm working with the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure on that to have that, that area fixed um, th- this construction season or or even the next, the beginning of the next. But uh, as you can appreciate, roads is a top priority here in our province among health care. And on that note, I also want to throw a hats off to the team at the Trinity Conception Placentia Healthcare Foundation. Uh, last week we had the telethon, the annual telethon, and it was a hit. Um, it was Significant money was raised. Um, volunteers come together every year, as you know, Linda. I think you may have even been out and been part of this over the years. Many times, uh, yep. Yeah, right? So, I mean, it's a real community, regional collaboration. And uh, just hats off to everybody who, who you know, who, who comes together every year to ensure that that is a, uh, a success. And I'm happy to say that um, I was able to also announce $50,000 um, on behalf of my colleague, the Minister for Health and Community Services, and, of course, the Premier, and the entire government, you know, to support this initiative. So lots of great things happening here in Harper Grace, Port Grave District. Uh, you mentioned the Port Grave uh, Peninsula Highway there, and I uh, travel over that last summer and uh, noticed the, <laughs> the state that it was in. Uh, so you say that work has been done. What about down there in Hibbs Hole where that whole area had been sort of fallen away from the cliff? Yes, absolutely. In that area, it has gone right on down into the peninsula. And, of course, there's always areas where they're coming back. I mean, whatever engineering, uh, I guess, is, det- is determined through the engineering what has to be done. Sometimes we see things that are that, that I'm told that there's some culvert work that needs to be done as well. So... It will be completed, I'm told, like I said, even, even at the top of the next construction season. So, and again, these are all engineering assessments that are done, but I just, what's important is that, be assured, I'm certainly keeping these priorities on the radar of the minister and, of course, the officials in the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. And it's a beautiful peninsula. Um, you know, it's one of the biggest attractions, in my opinion, of course, in our province. We have the, the annual boat lighting, which we're getting gearing up for, of course, this December, um, where all the harvesters come together, and not just the harvesters in the harbor here, in Port of Grave who light up their boats. But, you know, we see this, that, that it travels all the way up through the community, up through Baranid. Um They've also incorporated a large crab pot Christmas tree, probably the largest in the world. <laughs> so, there's, there's, you know, we certainly welcome everybody to come out to our coastal communities here out in this great district of Harbor Grace, Port of Grave. I understand that you also wanted to touch on the carbon tax. Is that correct? 
Well, that's right. As we know, um, we see the um, member of parliament, Ken McDonald, the member for Avalon. You know, he he actually voted against this again for a second time in the House of Commons. And I just want to reiterate our support for that. I mean, Premier Fury has written the Prime Minister um, and the government, and of course the Minister of Environment. You know, again, yes, of course, climate change is real. Look no further than what we saw in Port of Basque last year. But we have to write, use the right instrument, as the Premier has said. I mean, I don't think taxing the people, adding these taxes on home heating and, 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 on, and on fuel is the way to go. Um, we can't punish, the, you know, the people of the province, uh, you know, with our measures. So I just want to be clear on where I stand on that. I commend Ken for doing what he did. Um, you know, yeah, we've certainly got to work together for, for the initiative to save the planet. But we can't bleed the people of Newfoundland and Labrador in the process. And I hear it from constituents. I hear people daily calling my office with the struggles that they have. Um, and so I just want to throw my voice behind that. And again, I stand behind the Premier on his stance on this. Um, he's been out in front of it uh, just last night, just some media again uh, on this topic. So we are pleading with the, the, prevent, the, rather the federal government, let's go back to the table, you know, let, let's find another way. Yes, there are initiatives that we have to do for generations to come, or we won't have a planet. You know, but we can't. We have to go about it the right way, and not punish the people, the you know, the electorate, with regards to these high, heavy taxes. Pam Parsons, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Absolutely, and I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. I mean, let's do our part to check in on our neighbors and our seniors and do what we can, of course, to help those in need this time of year and always. And uh, so thank you, Linda, and thanks for your time today. And again, happy Thanksgiving to you and to all the listeners. Appreciate your time. Same to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now. When we come back, we're going to speak with Charlie and hopefully as well to you. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line into the final hour of the program. We're going to go now to Charlie. You're on the air. Hello, Charlie. Yes, good morning, Linda. Linda, um, I've got so many things to say here. Now, I'll try to be brief and concise. I was going to tell you a great UFO story, but I'm going to hold on that one, right? Uh, A Newfoundland uh, close encounter. Um, I find the more I learn about this world, the more I realize how ignorant I am of of the complexities. (laughs) I I, I just find it sometimes overwhelming. And uh, I find the other thing... um, I've been too trusting over the years of uh, officials, government uh, officials and uh, leaders and experts and so on on various things. And uh, looking back at Muskrat, uh, that's certainly the uh, case of listening to all the the uh, great things that was going to happen after. But I, I got to agree this morning with uh, 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 Dennis Amenis. Uh, I, I don't very often agree with him on the GH3 energy thing. We've asked the question very often, many of us, what happens when, when, when there's no wind? Does, does the, uh, are, are the projects operating only uh, during wind? And we found out uh, just recently that they're going to make demands on, on, on the grid. Now, why is this being discussed as uh, discussed at such a late date? Uh, surely, uh, this was one of the things that you'd have to deal with very early in this, and it seems like nobody has answers right now. It's just that they're they're going to ask for that part, not just the Stephenville one, but the other three as well. And we just don't have that power there. So it shows again. Now, government is proceeding. It seems like pell mell, and. Um, 
the, the, the answers to some of these vital questions haven't really been answered, you know? Do you want to comment? Well, that's uh, exactly the point, I, I suppose. And the people on the port of port Peninsula, which is a relatively uh, small and confined geographical area, are extremely concerned and asking lots of questions. And uh, by the sounds of it, they're not getting uh, the satisfaction that they're looking for. No, they've, they've painted it as, as this great project, and I certainly agree with clean energy. But uh, I've got my doubts about this project in terms of its uh, financial uh, feasibility for sure. But anyway, the other thing I want to comment on was uh, uh, Trudeau. Uh, he's not very popular in this country now, and that's understandable. I agree with many many of the things, uh, his policies, economics, like helping childcare and uh, what they've done for Newfoundland regarding rate mitigation and several other things. I find it strange that his ethical thing, he, he keeps underestimating the, the, the effect of these things on the population. He goes on a trip uh, Easter, and the trip costs about a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, they don't report uh, in Parliament the total expenses. But can you imagine how that goes over with uh, 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 the, the population when you, when, you, when you see the abuse of, of, of our funds? <laughs> I, I suppose you have to give him some government money, but let him pay for his own darn trips, right? <laughs> At least in part. I mean, this, this is ridiculous. He, he seems to, to have a blind spot on these issues when it comes to ethics. You want to comment there? Well, um, it certainly it would stick in the craw of an awful lot of people who are wondering, you know, um, should I buy this food item uh, because I can no longer afford it? Um, you know, how do I make my grocery bill stretch? How do I uh, deal with rising interest rates? Uh, what's going to happen to my mortgage? What's happening to my rent? Uh, can I find a place to rent? All of these things. These are very pressing day by day affecting you right now um, issues so when you hear things like that I would imagine a lot of people either roll their eyes or get very angry yes last comment I, I want to make is on uh, the the carbon tax thing this is this is a tough one for, for, for me I, I've, I've uh, uh, been in favor of it uh, but after I, what I'm seeing around the globe, Linda, is an example. Seven trillion was spent in, in, in 2022 subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. And then I look at some of the figures I gave you of coal uh, mines happening uh, in, um, opening in China and the amount of coal still being burned. And I, I look at Germany, you gave up on nuclear power and went back to coal after the Japanese thing. And I notice in Canada now we're talking about Trudeau as well as uh, Polyev and um, the uh, Ontario Premier uh, going more with nuclear. And I, I, I applaud that because although it has its problems, it's, it's far better, far cleaner. And uh, we definitely have to look at that again, right? On the carbon tax, I just don't know anymore. I, I, I'd, I'd like to see us cut down on the use of fuels, but perhaps there could be, and I don't know you administer this, there could be exemptions for uh, vehicles that carry food, food supplies and other vital industries. Um, the average Joe, I think we should cut down on, 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 on our mileage and so on, but uh, it's, it's a tough issue. Uh, I don't know if you want a quick comment there. No, that's all right. You continue. And, and the last thing I want to mention, uh, support for the caller just now about the moose thing. For God's sake, you drive along the highway. I refuse to drive at night anymore or, or dusk or dawn. 
But you see the brush in these areas. If you're not going to put up fencing, which which I know is costly, for God's sake, cut the darn brush, you know. What, what, what is wrong with government in that way? I just don't get it. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, Linda. All right, Charlie. I'll, thanks so much. I'll tell you the, the UFO story another time. I look forward to it. Uh, have yourself a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and you too. Alrighty. Bye bye. Uh, we are going to go now to uh, the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's, Doug Pawson. Hello, Doug. Uh, good morning, Linda. How are you? Good. So, I guess my question to you is uh, I mean, you're the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's. Uh, it must be frustrating to see, uh, you know, your mandate is to end homelessness when it looks as though, and you probably have the stats in front of you, it looks as though homelessness is actually increasing significantly. Yeah, great question, and something that you know we put in into the name of the organization because we want we want this to be a front and center issue. Um, and when we talk about you know ending homelessness, we're not talking about you know the, the various systemic pathways into homelessness, like a broken mental health system, uh, limited access to to substance abuse and addictions treatments, limited access to affordable housing. Um, you know, the cycle of incarceration and recidivism and, and deep levels of poverty that are, that are widening right in front of everybody's eyes today, as you were just mentioning to, to Charlie before. So these are things that, that affect individuals, you know, day-to-day lives that, that can often lead to, to homelessness. So these issues of poverty and lack of health care, lack of um, education opportunities and lack of support for for gender-based violence and, and trauma. And so there's a number of, of pathways into homelessness. And so when we talk about ending homelessness, it's about what does that system of care look like across communities, across uh, institutions and the government level, and how do we make sure that we're working together so that we can develop responses that don't only have to be emergency responses in those moments, but that can be preventative in nature. And so that's where the data for us come, becomes really important because if we have data, we can make better informed decisions about how to target resources earlier, uh, as well as in those emergency base settings. So that's that's really what we talk about when we say ending homelessness, because we're not going to end poverty and the deep levels of poverty that people are feeling today. No, indeed, and um, the whole uh, addictions and mental health issue is is a is a big and pressing uh, part of this conversation as well. So, how do you address some of these issues uh, in terms of you know making sure that people have uh, safe and affordable roofs over their heads? Yeah, I mean, the, you know. <laughs> We often say that homelessness is a policy. These are policy choices across all levels of government and successive governments going back decades. So, so we talk about policy choices. Inaction is also a policy choice. So we choose not to invest in those areas like health, mental health, addictions. Um, we're making a choice that we're not going to support people in communities around the province to, to, to have access to the things that are required. I'll just give you a, a stat. We, we ran our point-in-time count last fall. And in the in the survey of 183 folks that were were experiencing homelessness uh, over a 24-hour period in St. John's, 74% identified as having a disability. Um, the vast majority of that were were mental health disabilities. So. When we're not making investments and we're leaving people to suffer, inevitably their housing situations may deteriorate, their family relationships and friendships may deteriorate, and, and then they're left to to experience homelessness either in a shelter or on the street or, or be you know bouncing around 
the healthcare system or the justice system. And that's not what that's not an outcome that we want for people. So again, when we're not making those investments, when we're not doing those those preventative work, those are policy choices that impact people, families, and communities everywhere. I mean, in, in your line of work, you see these things all the time, but I think it's becoming increasingly distressing to, um, you know, for want of a better word, ordinary citizens to see people who are living in the rough. We get calls in our newsroom all the time. I had a woman half in tears the other day saying that she was so distressed to see this and she didn't know how to how to help. She wanted to help. Um, and now we see this, uh, you know, a tent city, for want of a better word, you know, a number of tents uh, set up there across from Confederation Building to, you know, get a little bit of attention to this uh, very pressing issue. So, I mean, how do you address this? Winter is coming. It's not the nicest day out there today, and we're not going to have very many nice days from now until next June. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the real challenge in front of in front of all of us in that sense. So, I mean, for the ordinary citizen looking to support, I mean, you know, again, if it's a, if these are policy choices, then writing your 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 MHA, your MP, your your city councilor, and and asking them what their plan is to to address the lack of affordable housing um, in their neighborhoods, those are those are you know simple tools that that can go a long way, especially if it's done in 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 a, in a volume. When it comes to the, the you know the uh, the issue for for the, the tent city as you described up on Confederation Hill, I mean we're seeing a lot of resources from community go up there and, and meet with folks, make sure that they're work, you know that they're safe and, and secure, just to make sure that they're supported. So I know we have our teams going up there. We're working with you know income support and and, and our housing as well, just to make sure that folks are are taken care of and their housing needs are identified and and in the effort to really support folks to move into into safe and affordable housing. Housing. The challenge is that those those options are very limited, and, um, and 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 that's a problem playing out in front of communities across the, the province. So, you know, when we don't address those things early on, and we don't use all of the policy levers, because this is really a, a whole of government issue, right? This is not just a, an issue of you know one department that that needs to resolve this. We, like we work really closely with with our colleagues in government. The folks on the ground are doing the best they can, but the resources just simply aren't there. So those are those are where the political dimensions need to be addressed. Those are the policy choices, you know, that need to be addressed. So we want to work together to identify those ways to get people out of that precarious situation and into affordable uh, housing. But but it, this is an all-of-government solution. We need all of the political parties provincially working together, working with the municipalities to row in the same direction because – that that's where this has a chance to, to 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 get successful or break down. So that's really the call to action: is seeing all levels of government here coming together, working with community, working with those folks who are experiencing homelessness, to to really address those issues. Uh, Doug, I know you know this is uh, work you do all the time, and you're you're working with government to try and address some of these bigger issues. But uh, for the for the immediate um, needs, uh, people are asking us. Are you taking donations? Is there anybody who's taking donations? Uh, the, you know, people are wondering if they can drop off blankets, whatever the case may be. People feel helpless and they want to help. Yeah, there's. I know there's folks up there who are who are taking in the donations. Um, if if folks want to contribute, that that's one and another easy way to do and support. But um, yeah, that those are those are easy ways, but in in many ways also you know kind of. Uh, um, you know, a band-aid solution to, to this broader systemic problem. And so, you know, um, everyday citizens who might see this might be able to contribute in, in, in small but meaningful ways like that.
Doug Pawson, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on what he's had to say? Give us a call. We're up to a break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Mike. You're listening to VOCM Open Line. And a lot of people uh, waiting to get on the line. We're going to try and uh, move through the calls and give everybody a fair chance. Uh, Mike, you're on the air. Hello, Mike. Yes, good morning. Uh, buddy there talking about the moose rubbed me the wrong way this morning. How so? Uh, I found, you know, like brush cutting now, there's no dispute in brush cutting. That's a no-brainer. Brush cutting should be done. But this racket with the moose and hitting the moose and all the rest of it, the moose accidents, the moose population is down dramatically. I live in the woods. I'm in the woods all the time. And I got a moose license a year. And the moose are not there like they were. And you can put one moose on this oil and somebody's going to hit them. And it's not because of the moose. It's because of the driver's. They only want to shift the blade to the moose because of the road stupidity of hitting them. And in the majority of cases, it's the fault of the driver, not the moose. I've seen half a dozen mooses. Mooses. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've seen half a dozen accidents. It was never the fault of the moose. It was the fault of the drivers. And I've seen some ridiculous accidents over the years. And I'm not by any means a slow driver. Now, you got one fellow calling in there all the time talking about how he got eight family members are after hitting moose. Well, I've got neither family member. My mother, father, youngsters, nieces, nephews, nobody in my family that I know of have ever hit a moose. So what's going on? Why are these people hitting the moose? That's the question. Not because they're hitting the moose and wants to get rid of the moose or do something or, or whatever. It's the drivers that we got to do something about. Not the moose. Well, you you have to be able to um, um, acknowledge the fact that it's almost impossible to avoid them if it's dark, if it's uh, um, bad weather, fog, rain, whatever the case may be, where it's difficult to see, we don't have lighting on the sides of our roads, and if the brush is right up to the side of the road, you're not going to have any reaction time. I'm not talking about brush. I agree with the brush cutting. The other stuff, it's our driving habits. We're driving too fast. If you're driving faster than you see the stop, you shouldn't be driving that fast. If you're going down that road and you're out there, well, that's your choice. Not mine or Moose or somebody else's. It's your choice. You're responsible for your actions. But no, these people are going out there hitting the Moose. They're got two big eagles to admit that they made a mistake, they weren't paying attention, they were driving too fast for the conditions. They can't admit their own faults, and they're trying to blame it on the moose. And I think it's ridiculous for these people to get on there and act the way that they're getting. Yes, we got people killed, but who was the ultimately one responsible for us driving? You know, I've seen it there. Oh, i seen one accident one uh, morning. Out just this side, uh, just towards St. Downs from Avenue, going around the turns there. And those walked in the woods on the other side of the road, walked down over the bank, across the two lanes of traffic on the other side, up to the medium, up across to our side, and this woman struck the moose in the uh, slower lane, the driving lane, and says that she never seen it. I watched it coming into the woods behind her. Never even put the foot on the brake. Bang. And I've seen several accidents like it, the same thing. People never see them. 
Broad daylight. The moose stood up in the middle of the road. Somebody got to come down the road and hit it. You put anything out there in the middle of that road, don't have to be a moose. Could be anything. And somebody's going to come down, hit it, and run over it or whatever. You can't block that road at all whatsoever. And you get out on that road where somebody's after hitting the moose. You try and take it off the road. In the center of the road, pull it off with glass and plastic shattering with people driving. And I've been on the road, haul them off the road, and people come down and run over the heads while we were holding hind legs, haul them off. And the glass and, and the plastic shards and that stuff blowing up in my face. It's stupid for the drivers to be out there talking about the moose the way that they're talking about. And I said, to anybody that hits a moose and youngsters kill, people killed, and that, whatever. But we have to take the uh, responsibility for our own actions. Mike, I expect we're going to get a lot of uh, response to what you've had to say. I appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stu is uh, on the air now. Stu, I understand you want to talk about moose? Yeah, and uh, the gentleman uh, just talking there, uh, completely out to lunch. Uh, I've done a lot of studying on the moose uh, problems as well. Uh, You know, I've been with Solpac. I think we have probably chatted lots over the years. Uh, you know, uh, and the problem doesn't really come down to uh, to the drivers as he suggested because he's seen one or two people uh, run into a moose or something. You know, oh, what well, that must be all of them. You know, uh, letting a moose running at almost nearly 40 miles an hour can run the length of a tractor trailer in one second. What you mentioned, uh, reaction time is not there. It's impossible. So. If it's a driver's fault, like what are we supposed to do? Walk the highways, you know, park our cars and walk so that this gentleman is satisfied? You know, again, uh, uh, it's just crazy how people get on. Uh, now, uh, brush cutting, of course, is what we're lacking. Uh, that's been reported just about everywhere around the province where, you know, the uh, brush is right up to the pavement pretty much. And uh, moose fencing, Linda, uh, is a great... Uh, uh, a great tool to combat this. Uh, like I said, New Brunswick has uh, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, uh, you know, and, and they don't have the moose problems that we got. And even if we have one or one million, that doesn't make a difference. If we can save a life, then let's do it. Uh, you know, so with all these things there that we can do to mitigate this, uh, simply blaming the drivers, uh, as this gentleman uh, seems quite, uh, quite happy to, you know, like, uh, government, I know government is listening, but, but they, you know, like a funny thing, Linda, when it comes to services for the people, the coffers are empty. But when it comes to contractors or capitalists, uh, you know, sky's the limit. Like, come on, you know, uh, this is crazy. So, uh, you know, we, we, we need more fencing. We need more brush cutting. Uh, brush cutting is the fastest thing we can do right now. All right, so, Stu, uh, we have to leave it there because we're up to news time, but I really appreciate your call. Thank you. You have a great weekend. All right, you too. Bye now. Bye-bye. And we are up to news time with Brian Medore, um, but we hope to hear from you after after this break. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. 
And the uh, VOCM open line email just blew up after Mike's call. If you have anything to say on that, you are welcome to give us a call. But we've got a busy last half hour of the show. We're going now to the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, John Abbott. Hello. Uh, Good morning, uh, Linda. How are things? Great. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So you were up in uh, Swift Current yesterday, I understand. Yes, uh, we were there uh, with uh, Premier Fury and the Jameson family to announce the renaming of uh, a large section of the Bjorn Peninsula Highway in honor of uh, Don Jameson, and it was a, a great event, uh, definitely well received and uh, definitely uh, overdue. Uh, for certain, and a lot of people uh, seem to applaud that move, um, but there are a lot of issues uh, facing transportation across the province, and we've been hearing about some of them, including brush cutting. Is that in your purview? Uh, yes, it is, and uh, we allocate uh, roughly $2 million a year for brush cutting in the province, and certainly uh, given the this past year and the growing season, and not that this hasn't been the case uh, previous to that, but we're seeing a lot of areas uh, that because of the, 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 the good weather, uh, a lot of uh, alders and whatever uh, that we need to continue to, uh, uh, to, to remove. So we're trying to see if we can scrape up some more money uh, this fall to continue that work, and it's certainly something I'm going to be focused on now when we do our budget for next year to see how we can expand uh, doing brush carting right across the province. It's a, it's a big challenge, it's a big issue, and certainly a, a significant safety issue. And my colleagues uh, in the caucus and certainly the other MHAs have certainly raised that with me uh, uh, around the province. We've had a few calls this morning about moose fencing. Is that something, I know it was uh, part of the conversation some years ago, but we haven't heard a ho- whole lot about it recently. Is that uh, still something that's being considered? Uh, we're certainly looking at that. We have obviously, uh, I know on the West Coast, we've done a fair bit of that. Uh, Uh, We're looking at the data and the evidence uh, uh, to make sure that it is the right thing to do. Uh, We're going to be doing, obviously, expanded uh, highway uh, highway construction, uh, and in some sections that may be uh, something that we should consider. So I've asked my staff uh, here in the department to to reassess uh, that, and if it's found to be effective, we'll certainly uh, be putting that in our budget as well. I've noticed myself in my travels across the province that there are some areas of highway, in some cases new highway, where the shoulders have just been eaten away completely, usually after a heavy rainfall and the like. Sometimes it's not just a, a you know, a, a, a rut there. It's a complete hole. It's fallen away. Um, how does uh, government and the Department of Transportation uh, mitigate that? Well, one of the things, obviously, and we're seeing, obviously, we're having, uh, I guess, because of climate change and, and other factors, we're definitely getting uh, much heavier rainfalls, and that's certainly going to have an impact on the, the highway, and particularly the shoulders. So we're constantly remaining vigilant uh, to, sh- uh, to shore up the shoulders uh, to make sure that they, uh, they obviously support the highway. So anytime any driver sees an area that they're concerned about, certainly please let the, the local depot know. Uh, but we're going to keep on top of that because that is uh, integral for the uh, for to retaining the, 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 the each of those highways. So it's an important uh, consideration, and uh, we'll make sure we're on top of that. Uh, uh, and our crews are uh, have the mandate to to do that when they see uh, an issue arise. There's some really bad spots on the Veterans Memorial there. I put it in your ear right now. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, the Canning Bridge, what's the latest on that? Well, thank you, and that's certainly one of the reasons I wanted to, to call in today. Uh, last night we had a very uh, productive 
town hall meeting uh, sponsored by the town of Marystown uh, in Marystown to talk about uh, the replacement of the Canning Bridge. It's of uh, a significant uh, piece of infrastructure uh, that connects both the north and south of the town. Uh, because of the uh, the uh, deterioration on the bridge and because of safety uh, considerations, we had to close the bridge earlier this year, and certainly that's brought attention to, well, when are we going to replace it, how are we going to replace it, uh, and how long that's going to take. So we wanted to make sure that the the town officials as well as the uh, the town citizens uh, really knew what was happening. So we had a, an information session as well as a Q and A uh, to talk about the uh, replacement. Uh, the uh, we had our uh, technical, you know, our engineers and, and our consultants there to present uh, on the facts. Uh, this is going to be a major project, a minimum $20 million uh, to undertake this. We were trying to figure out uh, with, the, with the town and others how we can uh, expedite its replacement. So we, I think we're in a good place uh, that uh, we will probably be able to start uh, decommissioning and removing the existing bridge and starting reconstruction uh, as early as next year. Uh, we'll have all the technical work done uh, to allow us uh, to get to that stage. Uh, we have environmental assessment processes and other processes to go through, so we'll be working on that over the winter and that we should be in a good position to, uh, uh, with the town uh, to get, uh, get that project uh, rolling as quickly as possible next year. Uh, back to the moose uh, accident mitigation, uh, if you will, because we've uh, had some people asking, uh, what about the whole uh, concept not only of um, clearing the sides of the road, but also hydro-seeding uh, those areas in the ditches? Uh, we'll certainly, uh, we obviously do some of that, and we will continue to, to see where that makes uh, sense. I was driving in last night from uh, from Marystown. Uh, it was late, and we did see uh, again a, a moose accident. Uh, you know, and uh, it was definitely unfortunate. But the police were there on top of it right away. I don't think there was any injury, but certainly the the animal was uh, was uh, was killed. So it's ever vigilant in my mind as a, as a, as a driver on the highway what things we can and should be doing to uh, for uh, driver safety. Uh, and I was listening to some of the callers earlier this morning, obviously different perspectives on how, how one does that, but the drivers are ultimately going to have to be careful uh, when they're on the highway at night, because uh, no matter what we do, uh, the moose uh, have their own trajectory in life, and they'll, uh, they'll, uh, they'll appear when you least expect them, for sure, and I've experienced that uh, myself. Oh, I think a lot of us have, uh, have had some close calls, for sure. Uh, Minister John Abbott, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Lynn, any time, and uh, have a happy Thanksgiving to you, to the VOCM crew, and certainly uh, your listeners. Same to you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we have uh, the Minister of uh, Fisheries, Elvis Loveless, in the uh, lineup, but uh, Michael Harris has been waiting there for a little while. Uh, Michael, hello. Hey, Linda, how are you doing today? Good. You're with the Manuals River Interpretation Centre. Yes, I am, and we have three big events going on this weekend, part of the Saver CBS event and our Chester Trails weekend. Ooh, what do you got on the go? Tonight we have our traditional Newfoundland dance. We're going to have Hamilton Sound with the renowned Bud Davidge in. Uh, we still have tickets for sale on that one and tickets for sale at the door all night. On Saturday, we have our Chester Trails food hike, which is our big annual food hike. We have 11 chef stations this year. 
two of them are desserts. I know a lot of people are looking forward to that one. We have uh, some breweries coming in to our beer tent to do some pouring and sampling. We also have some wine samples. Uh, still some tickets on that one, and the first 200 get a special prize at our registration table. And on Sunday, we have a great way to end it off, uh, a magical ending, if you will. We have our family magic show with uh, Gary Summers. That's, uh, that sounds like a fun event. So how does the Manual Interpretation Center go from trilobites to uh, these kinds of fun family events? Well, we always do a little bit of everything. We like to think that uh, we have our hands in a little bit of everything here besides the trilobites and the geology. Of course, a lot of people know we are an event center for the area, and we love kicking off events for the community and getting all the smiling faces out here. Right on, and uh, filling their bellies with some yummy food. Oh, yes, yummy food and great beer. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, Michael, all the best. Uh, how do people get involved? Uh, best way for people to get involved and buy tickets on this, they can give us a call at 709-834-2099. They can visit us at manualsriver.ca. Uh, they can also grab tickets at the door, but that's only for our event tonight and Sunday. If they're looking to come to Chester Trails, they're going to get their tickets online or give us a call. And if they can also reach out to our Facebook page, and we'll help straighten them away. Excellent. And we've got all those numbers here. We'll have a little something up online in the next uh, short while for anybody who's interested. Michael, all the best to you. Have fun this weekend, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks a lot, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. That's uh, Michael Harris with the Manuals River Interpretation Centre. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture, Elvis Loveless. Uh, stay tuned for that. And we are back. We're going to go now to the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture, Elvis Loveless. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, great. How are you? You're, you're, I'm doing very well. You're, you're a busy host this morning, and it's that's, that's busy, a good busy, thing. Busy. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, Absolutely. But, Melinda, if you don't mind, yeah. uh, if I can start off by, um, you know, I'm MHA responsible for Fortune Bay, Cape Loon. I was listening to the Minister of Transportation on earlier and talking about uh, brush cutting, which is very important, and I've had, you know, certainly consistent uh, investment in my district. More needs to be done, more will be done. But uh, kudos to the workers even – who did the paving this year down in my district. Um, there's been a lot of good feedback, uh, people talking about how the pleasurable uh, drive down there. Um, uh, there. There's been significant and, and consistent investment, but there will be more because I believe it's important to that region for, in, in my district. So I just want to let people know that uh, there's more work to be done, and I'll be focused on that and looking forward to next year's investment as well, um, like it should be through, throughout the province because there are economic development indicators that require, uh, I believe, around the focus of paving and brush cutting. So I just want to say kudos to all of those who made the, the paving season happen this year. I think it was successful in my district and even throughout the province. But uh, So I just wanted to put that out there first before we get into all things that are that are fish, and uh, uh, I, I know this call is, is kind of fishery-focused, uh, but uh, as you said, I'm minister responsible for forestry and agriculture, and certainly would love to have a conversation even sometime around forestry and the uh, agriculture uh, piece, because uh, big things are happening. I don't believe it's talked about enough, um, but uh, you know we can certainly have some good conversation around that, and we can do it some other time. So uh, um, if, if you wish, I, I can begin in terms of an opening statement on, uh, you know, the, the fishery season this year. And I know it's been talked about. Patty uh, invited me on, and, and I have you today to talk to, but I'll certainly 
call into Patty again some other time, and I'm certainly willing to have a conversation around that. And and I, I don't I don't mean to to, leave, to begin by uh, using a old cliche statement that how important the fishery is to Newfoundland and Labrador. It is absolutely, and it's worth repeating. Uh, but. Let, let me begin by saying that you know the delay this year, uh, Linda, in terms of the fishery, the six to seven week was a real problem for the industry. Uh, the premier and I uh, did a uh, three four day tour across the province a couple of weeks ago, and we heard that quite clear from harvesters, fish plant workers, processors, producers. Uh, we certainly we certainly heard that it interfered with uh, other weeks of other fisheries to give uh, workers uh, the hours required. So it really put a um, a problem in the industry this year on that delay. So we're, we're our I guess our responsibility, our our goal right now, and this this is why we're we've started the process early in the fall to have these wrinkles ironed out, if you would, um, before March comes and the beginning of the season starts. So we're starting early. That's a commitment that the Premier made, uh, I've made, and in order for that to happen, we need all stakeholders to you know, in, ensure that the season starts on time because there's quality issues, there's time issues, um, employment issues. So there's a lot of consideration. So starting on time is certainly paramount. And uh, Linda, I'll, I'll end there just to give you a chance to question me or, or uh, uh, throw some statements. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's so many tendrils to this story, as you already know. I don't need to tell you. But uh, okay, so we had the tie up, the six to seven week delay. Yep. Um, the, the big problem now for both harvesters and plant workers are these changes that have been made to EI qualifying criteria. What's your right. role in trying to get that addressed? Well, we, we've uh, we've certainly communicated that to the federal government because uh, I, I don't understand it because um, you know this is this was a tough year and uh, not because it's just a tough year that EI uh, uh, regulations changed. Um, they should not have changed because because it was a tough tougher year for us industry um, because the plant workers and and when we did our tour I talked to a lot of plant workers because the plant workers said to me minister don't forget us I can uh, if plant workers are listening uh, this morning I can guarantee you that they will not be forgotten not from this minister I can guarantee you that and certainly from the premier we made that commitment to him as well so the EI changes while I can't make the change but we've certainly certainly uh, went to the federal government, we went to the regional ministers uh, to say these changes should not be happening because they're putting more strain on a strain system this year for people obtaining their hours. So, um, I, I, and that's, I guess we're, we're pushing them and pushing them and, and, and asking them to uh, not do this at this time. And not only that, how they look at the province in terms of Avalon versus western, southern parts of the province. It has to be looked at from a different lens, and and I think that's where we've asked them to do that as well. Is not under one blanket lens that it should be looked at from different areas of the province that had different challenges in turn trying to obtain their hours. So, um, and 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 at you know at the end of the day, it's not my decision because if it was my decision, I'd be saying we would not be doing this, putting the strain on people that are trying to get their hours to to allow them to have employment insurance uh, benefits moving into the winter months.
So that's uh, one issue, of course, and mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get some responses uh, to that uh, very Absolutely. important question for a lot of people because, you know, they're going to be without the, any income and uh, no ability to make that income. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree totally. The other issue, of course, is uh, one that was raised uh, the other day by Jeff Loader with the Association of Seafood Producers, and he's talking about uh, the issuing of crab licenses, and he asked some uh, direct questions about what the policy goals are in those uh, types of things and he referenced St. Mary's in particular okay. uh, and he was talking about uh, capacity and he said there are no real capacity issues and now we're hearing uh, stories about how crab had to be dumped um, you know respond to some of the concerns that Jeff Loader raised about that yeah no and I think Mr. Loader I mean we've we certainly have had conversations in the boardroom here um, and I've had conversations with FFAW and harvesters and fish night workers which is a responsible thing to do um, and, and in terms of the processing, I think Mr. Loader knows where we are in terms of our processing pro, uh, uh, policy and, and, and where we are. But I, I say to him and I say to the industry, I guess, um, you know, we have to, to ensure that there's a fair, balanced process to all of this. And, and, and I, don't, I don't make a decision on whether it's St. Mary's or any part of the province to say, oh, yeah, we'll throw a license at them, throw a license at them. It's a process that is done, uh, and it's not done quickly, it's not done lightly, it's done responsibly. And, and that process is, for, the, for your listeners, with the help of the Fish Processing Licensing Board, there's an application process. All that information is, is, comes to us, carefully reviewed, and decisions are made based on the best interests of the industry and province. So we, we have a challenge, and, and it all comes down to the resource. If we have enough total allowable catch, uh, if that increases, well, that uh, that then allows me as minister uh, through this process to determine now, okay, can we, should we, based on the econ- economics of it, the, the, the capacity of it, uh, the worker side of it, to now grant another license to some part of the province, whatever that application would be. Um, so it is done responsibly, and it's not just done, I'm going to issue a license for the sake of issuing a license. We, we do it responsibly. We will continue to do it responsibly. Um, when, and when I say responsibly, you're taking in consideration the the harvesters, the processors, producers, um, the fish plant workers, and the whole as an industry. So, um, you know, we, we I look forward to the new season. I, I really do. There are going to be challenges? Absolutely. Uh, but I believe it's not just Minister Loveless or Premier Fury's government that has the answers uh, to uh, how the, the industry should be moving forward. If we're going to bring about change, Mr. Loader, FFAW, harvesters, there has to be movement on their parts as well. I think they understand that. We've had that communication because I'm not a minister about pointing finger. You can, but what do you gain by pointing fingers? Nothing. This is about the whole of the industry. We all pull together. We'll have a better industry. Minister Lovelace, we have less than two minutes to go, unfortunately, yep. and there's so much to talk about here. I, but I know. Uh, St. Mary's, of course, had a cap uh, yep. placed on it, two million pounds, if memory serves. Um, right. So what will that continue? Why was a cap placed there um, when other companies, larger companies, for instance, don't have that cap? Well, that, it, it was 2.5 uh, uh, for, for conversation purposes here, and that was based on their submission to the board. 
not uh, Minister Loveless or, or previous Minister Bragg um, or the department making to say you're only going to get 2.5. That was based on the capacity employment issues around it. So that was in the submission to the board and proposal. Now, they came in to me. And we responsibly looked at it because it was a tough year and they could process more. We allowed it on a one-time basis this year. Uh, will we look at it further into the, to the future? Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not shutting the door on anything in terms of what we should do for um, more, more employment in an area, economic development in an area, because I believe that's a responsible thing for us to do. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to just stamp approval everything, because when I stamp it, the necessary work will be done and due diligence will be done on it before I put that stamp down. Final assessment of this year's uh, fishery? It, I, I believe it was a good year, challenge year. Uh, it was a good year because it uh, uh, 95% of the Newfoundland uh, crab quota got uh, caught. Yes, the concern of the, the dumping, absolutely a grave concern. But you're catching ca uh, crab in uh, season when really it wasn't the season. You're moving into warmer temperatures. That brought up a lot of challenges for producers and processors and, and harvesters. So w when I say the seven-year or the or sorry the seven-week delay was uh, a real problem, it was. It was contributable to the dumping of of, of some of this crab. Very concerning. All of that uh, kept in mind. But I want to say, Linda, that you know what? For this to have happened. I say thank you to the to, to the uh, the fish plant workers who were working overtime and pushing because I heard from them and they worked hard. So thank you to all of them: harvesters, processors, fish plant workers, truck drivers, graders, inspectors. It took a collective effort, and uh, uh, while there were a lot of challenges, still I think it was a decent uh, um, uh, fishing season this year. We look forward to a better one next year. We'll all pull together, and uh, hopefully that will you and I will be talking next year to say uh, we had a much better season because this is what happened. We all pull up our sleeves, all of us. But uh, so. I, I, uh, as you said, there's so much more to talk about. I would love to talk about more in terms of even young people want to entering the fishery. For sure. It'll have to be a conversation for another day because we're completely out of time. Brian Medor is uh, tapping on my door. Yeah, really appreciate your time, Elvis Loveless. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure talking to you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back on Tuesday. Enjoy your long holiday weekend. Uh, we're up to news time now. Brian Callahan is sitting in for me on News Talk this afternoon. Be sure to st uh, stay tuned for that. He always has something interesting to talk about. Thanks.